Hello and welcome to Spoiler Chats by Triangle Squared. I'm your host, Brett Beck, and alongside me, as always, for this series, as you've known it, is Mr. Chris Figgs. Chris, how you doing today, buddy? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. How you doing, Brett? I'm doing well. Had a good time getting all of my stuff done to date this a little bit. If you've been listening to the Triangle Squared podcast, of course, I just recently finished remodeling my, or basically finished remodeling my game room and have been basking in the comfort of the new area. Um, I finally broke it in just to see how playing games were like was with the new setup. Yeah. And I'm with the spot that I had for it. And as well as where I'm at, I'm like, I kind of wish I had a 65 inch instead of a 55 (laughs) inch TV, but. Well, when I come down, you can borrow my 65-inch for a while. If you have a 65-inch LG OLED, then yeah, certainly. Uh, no. <laughs> I am impressed that you got all that done during the summer. It's very hot, so, you know, doing all that, that hard work must have been crazy. It's cold here. I, I know. I was making a uh, dating the Terrible. episode joke. Terrible. I had a feeling, but I was like, also, this <laughs> this man lives in a spot where it could be fucking fire, and I would never know. No, there's <laughs> a there's uh, it's been snowing for two days, and it's probably like, colder like, where you are than it is for me. Yeah, there's like 18 inches of snow out there right now. Trust me, I've done this stuff in the heat, and I don't know what your heat is like. I would imagine not like yours. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you've also got a lot of water around you, so it could be all hot and wet. That's true. It does get humid. Yeah, we get humid around here, too. I don't even know why. We don't have that much water around us. Humidity's a lie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, don't things only exist if there's a reason for them to exist. And you have to give them reason to exist. And, oh, stop me. I'm spouting off philosophy, which brings me to the point of uh, us talking about a specific game today. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like that really bad segue? That was painful. <laughs> Painfully bad. Uh, but... If you've been watching the show for any amount of time, I think you're aware that uh, I love Nier Automata. I love the original Nier as well. I waited with bated breath for Nier Automata and was so glad to see that it didn't disappoint for me. Can't speak on Mr. Chris just yet, but yep. that's kind of the point of this episode. So I've never done a, a content where I've done a deep dive on my thoughts and feelings behind Automata. Of course, I've let it be known that I like it. But what was cool is, much like Chris has uh, in store to one day have me play through <laughs> Persona 5, I think is his preferred route. Uh, out of curiosity, Chris, is yes. you, when we do it, is it going to be 5 or Royal? Royal, no question. Persona 5 okay. doesn't even exist anymore to me. Okay, I figured <laughs> as much, but I just wanted to be sure. <laughs> so, uh, okay, but yeah. I had the opportunity to kind of get Chris. I, I won't say I strong-armed him because it really wasn't. It was a it was a simple agreement of if I bought Nier Automata for him, he yeah. would play it despite his boycotting of the game. Yes, which I only said because I didn't think you would buy it for me. <laughs> I am a man of my word. <laughs> I, I bought like, it before we even started recording the Spider-Man episode. Yeah. And he didn't even realize. Nope, I did not. <laughs> so... With that said, Chris had to sit down. He didn't have to. He chose to sit down and honor his side yes. of the agreement and play near Automata. And, you know, of course, in, in living life like this, it's not like I was completely unaware of how he felt. But we did try and make a concerted effort to not give away all of our feelings in the game. So that mm. we could come together and kind of have a natural conversation and discuss with each other and be hopefully surprised 
I think I'm going to be more surprised by Chris than Chris will be surprised by me, just by nature of me singing the game's praises. I would imagine so. Just a little bit of a kind of starting point for everybody. Yes. If you've never played this game, near Tamina, we will absolutely be spoiling it. Yes. There is a high chance, depending on where this conversation goes, that we will be spoiling some aspects of near as it was called in the U.S., but as it will be called whenever it re-releases soon, Near Replicant. Near Replicant is actually a slightly different take on the story from the version that we originally got in the West where you played as Daddy Near, as we call him, and you were the father to Yona. Near Replicant, the Japanese release, and then the one that they're basing this remaster off of is Brother Near, where you're playing as the brother of Yona. But the story beats basically follow the exact same path. So there's a chance we'll spoil that. If also you've played Nier Automata and you want to dig a little further into the lore, a YouTuber called Klimps has a summary of the stage play that this game is actually set after. So there is a stage play that was only available in Japan. And what we experienced about Automata, the characters are actually set up and their uh, motivations are a little bit more fleshed out throughout that. So if you're interested in that, go check out that video. It's really great. And, uh, helps if you're an english speaking if you if you have the ability to speak japanese maybe you can get an even better version of it uh there's also some bits of story and extended lore that are available in certain books as well as the near concerts that they did which were also japanese only but thankfully someone has translated out those and in a cool thing as far as i'm concerned the english voice cast for automata came together and read that uh, the translated script so that was really cool there's a lot of ways for you to dig deeper into the lore here and there's a lot of connections to drakengard and more yoko taro stories so if this is your first play with yoko taro and you really enjoyed it stick around for more and be mindful of certain things we say i'll try to warn that we're going to be talking about the original near for a second whenever i can but by nature of discussion it may come out uh -huh. so with that out of the way i think we have to start this in a very simple way, and I think the most simple thing is to ask you, as a blanket statement, as a sum of all of its parts, did you or did you not enjoy Nier Automata? That is a difficult question for me to answer, honestly, because I think my answer is sort of. <laughs> I mean, if that's your answer, then that's your answer. And that's why I chose to word it as a sum of its parts thing. Because I know that, again, we tried to keep from conversating as much yeah. as possible, but I know that there were some things that you had that were questions and problems. Yeah. And it got to a point where after that, I think we made even more of an effort to not discuss that as much as possible. Well, I just didn't want to get yelled at. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you never, you never once got yelled at. Eh, no, but. I don't know. I can say with certainty that I like this game about a hundred times less than you. Yeah, that's probably fair. I could tell that just from the enthusiasm or the lack thereof in which you talked about this game with. Yeah. Well, I think the biggest problem for this game is that... So I had never intended to play it, right? As we joked about, I quote-unquote boycotted it. But... So I'd listened to stuff about it, and I didn't avoid spoilers or anything. And realistically, a lot of it didn't get spoiled. But the way people talked about this game, you would think I was missing the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this was like the second coming of some guy named Jesus, but it certainly wasn't 
that. And I think that was part of my feel that helped color my feelings on it anyway, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I get what you mean because whenever you're coming into something and you're behind on it, and I don't even mean that in any other sense, and you're behind on it. You didn't play it and it was new. You didn't play it even some games. You didn't play it whenever it suddenly becomes a big phenomena like I think Automata eventually did. It did well at launch, but I think it really found its footing about a year after launch. Yeah. And that's when you get a lot of people coming together and be like, oh, man, this is what I loved about this game. I really appreciated this. And you get to where the people talking about the game almost makes it to where it's like you build up a mental image of what it is. Mm-hmm. And when you build up a mental image of something and it's, it's weird. Cause I think as humans, we have two interesting phenomena. We are, we tend to be more likely to outwardly discuss things whenever we have a bad experience. And I think that on the weirdest swing on the other side, if we have a really good experience that surprised us, not one that we expected, but one that surprised us, then it swings the opposite direction where you're only going to talk about the good things. So when you have the other effect, it's like you're only talking about because you had a bad experience or a bad enough experience, you're only talking about the bad things and you tend not to get into the good things just by nature of how it goes. And so when you swing that the opposite way and you're talking about all the good things, even if the game wasn't perfect for you, you're building up this image for other people to where it's just like, oh, this game has to be amazing. And it has to be one of those things of like, oh, if you haven't played it, then why are you even playing games? And then suddenly you play it and it doesn't meet that gargantuan, you know, monolithic thing that you created in your head of what it was supposed to be. And it's funny that you say that because Nier Automata is the game for you that you had no intentions of playing. And I am the one who nudged you in the direction of playing it. Yeah. Persona 5 is a game that I have no intentions of playing and I never really have. And I think that I constantly hear people talk about it. And my worry is very similar to yours in that I feel like I'm going to play it and it's not going to be what I've heard so many people talk about from across the original release of five all the way back into Royal. So I think for me, the difference is at least for me with persona five, especially is it's entirely story that I like and the gameplay is great for the genre but without the story i wouldn't talk about it that way so it's and near is kind of in the same place except my problems are with the gameplay of near so persona 5 i could see you having the same issue but i think the story and the gameplay for what it is is good enough that it won't have this as much of an issue like this i don't think you're gonna think persona 5 is the second coming but oh yeah i mean and, and i get that and it's good that we're kind of having that conversation up front because I do have so many friends who have loved Persona for so long that I feel the same way about Persona 4 Golden. Uh, you know, it's it's the golden child of the Vita, and it's one of the best games. And it gets to the point where every time I've thought about playing it, I'm like, I don't know. I just I feel like there's too much expectation that's carried with the title now. That it, And it happens with any game. If you really love a game and you go out and tell people, you're actually building, I won't say a false version, but you're building a version that there's no way can be the reality that they experience. Yeah. And that happens across the board. It happens with music, happens with movies. It tends to be one of those things where I think people really grip onto something and have a better experience if they didn't go into it with any kind of knowledge of what to expect beforehand. And I think when looking at your particular experience as we are, you know, as we get ready to dive into it, I think that the fact that you ahead of time knew about the 
trophy thing and it already painted the game in a negative way for you. I think that that was one of those things where it's like you had an initial negative response, but then you followed that with a bunch of people saying how amazing it is. And then you play it with some knowledge of what's happening. Yeah. And it still comes to a point where because you had an expectation going into it, this, it reminds me of the, the talk of the order, except for the order swung the other way. Yes. Where the talking was so bad that you expected it to be a terrible game. And then when it wasn't, it was like, wow, okay. And the reality is, is that every game really rests in the middle. And the ideal way to play any game is to try and get in as early as possible and with as little outward fanfare as possible. <laughs> but mm-hmm. that's where we are. So you brought up gameplay. Yeah. And I think the best way to talk about this game, because I think a lot of the conversation will be weighted specifically toward the story. Yes. I think the best way to kind of talk about this game is through gameplay first. Yeah. And then kind of start to drive into story because I think that the one thing about this game that love it or hate it, I think you may hate it because it's affected you in a number of ways. There are a number of times where gameplay is significantly impacted by narrative reasons. Yes. And that is a good thing depending on who you are and a bad thing depending on who you are and what you like in a game. So the story is not completely separated from the game. I think that this game does a really good job of continuing to tell its story through its, its gameplay and mechanics, but it still stands differently. So I know that you have problems with the gameplay and I know that me and you rest on two different sides. I won't say that with RPGs. I don't think that you have a lot of experience, right? I think let's give the listeners kind of a, a rundown summary of how many JRPGs you've played. I mean, but is this even a JRPG? Yes. I don't think I agree with that at all. I think this is a J action game, but I. Oh yeah, I mean, but then again, at this point, uh, it's a J A R P G. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've never played one of those because I don't know of any other ones. But like, Kingdom Hearts, Persona Five. I just I've never played Kingdom Hearts. I'm not 12 years old anymore. Yeah, Final Fantasy 15. <laughs> uh, no, I've never played Final Fantasy 15. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of other ones. I think in, but in I've played ways, Final you Fantasy Seven. Star Ocean Remake? is another long-running series that's always been uh, real-time action. I, don't know. I guess when you say JRPG, I think of Persona 5 and Final Fantasy 7 original. And yeah, you think of a classic JRPG style where it's more yeah. turn-based, which is a thing. Then you also, <laughs> I mean, there's always been real-time combat in, in JRPGs. It just got to a point where then they became ARPGs, but they still clearly are Japanese-influenced. So... That's really, it's one of those things where somehow Japan ends up getting to be JRPG just for the fact of it's an RPG, regardless of it's action or not. And it's clearly made by a Japanese studio. So. Yeah. I mean, those. I feel like that, that moniker has lost a lot of play over the years because like, what if I from, from Connecticut made an RPG that was the same as Persona 5? Would it be a JRPG or is that a Western RPG? You know? Yeah, I think at some degree it's a, it's a Western RPG inspired. It's, it's basically what Avatar is, right? Avatar is a Western anime inspired by Japanese anime. Yeah, I mean, I would always, I I still make the argument that the Boondocks is the best anime I've ever seen. So, <laughs> so anyway, let's just say this: How many Japanese based games have you played? Let's just kind of do it because I think the one thing that's a through line throughout all of this is that the way that the Japanese actually go about making games is very different to Western culture. And I think that that shows through in, and not even games. I think all of their media, 
I think ends up standing very different to Western media from the way that their culture and ideals shine through in just a very strong way that other groups have. But I mean, I think anime is something that's a very strong pull towards uh, Japanese culture for me. And then of course, JRPGs is that is almost like a spring off from it. You think of like K-pop, which J-pop is almost like a breed of K-pop as it Mm -hmm. splinters off. So clearly things go off and get inspired by elsewhere, but how many Japanese developed games have you played if you had to put a number on it i don't know again because i feel like the wording is weird but i I was i would imagine most of my stuff is in is in western rpgs but like are you talking about resident evil because i've played all those (laughs) silent hill i've played all those metal gear i've played all those those very different than than western horror in a lot of ways no not really I don't think I can't I can't find a discernible difference between Resident Evil Seven and Outlast, except Resident Evil Seven is better. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so I guess that you know, I mean, maybe that's a thing from playing Japanese and games forever and feeling like I can spot the things. Now, it would be, of course, fun to take somebody who plays Japanese content and give them Western-developed games or shows that were made to are inspired to basically be like Japanese made stuff and see if well, they can actually tell the difference. I don't even know why I didn't bring this up, but I've, I've finished every Yakuza game. So yeah. there are no more Japanese games. Oh, you there. did? Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, you're literally in Japan in those games. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hiro Kizuma is my, is my spirit video game character. And in many ways that's an action RPG. So yeah, yeah I, w- I wouldn't even, I wouldn't call it a JRPG. Yeah. I mean, again, it's still in a lot of ways is, but at the same time, it's also not because there's not that many. I mean, if that's a, if elements, that's a, you know what I, I mean. I guess the thing is, if that's a JRPG, then I don't know what a JRPG is, and nobody has ever articulated it properly to me. I think that that's actually the problem. Is much like music, it gets to a point where games continue to borrow elements from other games so much that it gets to a point where you look and you're like, I don't know how to classify this. That just feels weird to me because to me, a JRPG is a turn-based RPG. Like I don't Castlevania is not a JRPG. Technically, you know? to be a JRPG, all you have to be is Japanese and a role-playing game. Okay, then that's fine. <laughs> then, but <laughs> as a genre, I don't. To me, when I hear the shorthand of JRPG, and again, this is just maybe because it's I listen to I've been listening to Colin Moriarty for fifteen years talk about JRPGs, but it's a it's a it's a specific thing, and this is not it. And Yakuza is not it, and neither is is resident evil but when you say it's a japanese role-playing game fine i'm with you there <laughs> <laughs> and let's see i think that's just a matter of perception right but let's go ahead and break into gameplay i mean yeah. clearly you've played other action games yes have you played devil may cry i have okay so just gonna going through because one of the things to look at here is this is developed by platinum games so of mm-hmm. course they have a lot of uh, knowledge and expertise in making games as a lot of them are ex Capcom people in like Bayonetta and Vanquish. Exactly. So when you look at all that and you come into this, I think that to a degree you're getting, I think the best thing I have to say about this is like, it's a new development team behind a new entry in an existing franchise. And when you look at the gameplay, the first level, the opening level sets the tone for not only new players that the series will switch genres and play styles up on you but it also serves to show fans of the original title who are coming back and being like oh this is a new near title i know what to expect from a near title for myself that they have a respect for the original game and want to make something that draws from what that title did but for <laughs> yeah. you coming into it 
just about the only thing you have is, well, I know what a platinum game is like. Yes. So what was the difference there? I mean, because I think coming into it, were you aware that the game switched genres often? No, I guess not. I don't I don't know. I didn't feel like it switched genres very often except for it went from bullet hell to ARPG. To, yeah, because you go through like bullet hell segments. You go through like the hacking and stuff like that. You go through hacking, which is more like uh, twin stick shooters. Yeah. Uh, and see, it's with the weird, like the game goes through those different things, but then you also go through... This game does it to a lesser extent, but you do go through like side platforming sections where like the game goes to be like almost a Metroidvania style camera as you sure. wrap around. Did you also have moments where platforming comes into more of a play than in other parts of the game? And you also get into parts where you may not have realized it because they do a much better job of not doing it for very long segments here, but text-based adventures. Yeah, yeah. So this game does a lot, but it, this game I think is a little stronger in staying to a true one dimension. You know, it has a, a, a stronger core that it sticks with. Whereas something that you wouldn't have known because you didn't play the original is that the originals get the original game would basically change up and each section would have a certain style. So there'd be a style where you were doing the whole game from basically a top down point of view. Uh, and then there was one where you were doing like a Diablo, um, third-person isometric camera for the entire time. There was an entire section that you had to go through that was all text-based adventure, and you had to write down and remember stuff and figure out how to go through the puzzles. This game is not nearly as dedicated. It decides to be more fluid in how it moves between them. Okay. But that I think that's probably why it wasn't as jarring. You know, I think when you play the original Nier, it is more jarring, but it's also more noticeable. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, to be jarring is to be noticeable. But I don't necessarily know that jarring has to be said with a negative connotation. Because something can still be jarring to you, but then be like, okay, now that I'm to grips with it, this is cool. Yeah, that's fair. I guess the short answer to the question of gameplay is just I didn't find the game fun to play. Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear why. I think I know one is that you were playing the game on for some odd reason, the ultra hardest difficulty. That's true, yes. Without knowing it, apparently? Yeah, I didn't realize that I had said it that way. But I'll, I'll tell you right now, I didn't have fun when it, was on, when it was on very easy either. I found it monotonous. Oh, like, there's no way I'd play this game on very easy either. <laughs> yeah. Is that what you did? You went to two different extremes? No, well, the only, I, play, I moved it down, continued to be bored, so I set it to very easy so I could have it autoplay everything and only see the story. Because I was so bored of playing the game. That was the biggest problem when I lost all that progress, which we didn't talk about here. And I just, I didn't want to play it anymore. <laughs> I wanted to see what happened in the story. But for the most part, I was like, I might just watch this on YouTube. And for the integrity of the show, I chose not to do that. But I did not want to play it anymore. <laughs> that is wild. Yeah, I did not like it at all. Now, I mean, I knew you didn't like it, but I also didn't realize that you had once a very easy. And I think that I definitely agree that if I would play this game where it did everything for me, there's no way I'd keep. I mean, I well, say that the story is really good, but I would hate to keep playing it when it was play. Like, you know, it was gameplay moments. To clarify, I put it on very easy when I gave up on the gameplay. Okay. Because so you they have. Play the entirety once. No. I got you. Uh, once I was like, I don't want to play this anymore, I put it on very easy so that I could use auto hack, auto target, auto attack, auto dodge, auto heal, and I just let the game play itself. 
and then I mm. walked to where the, the quests were, I did the quests, and then I finished the game. <laughs> I applaud you to a degree, but at the same time, I think I almost stand on the point that I would personally, for myself, I think everyone's going to be different in that situation because there's, yeah. there's a big move in gaming that's happened, I think, since 2017, which is interestingly enough when this game came out. Mm-hmm. Technically, I think there were some 2016 games that did this too. But there's been a big move, Sony's been big on doing this, of either releasing the game with a basically very easy mode where it's almost impossible to fail. Yeah, like story difficulty or whatever. Yes, and it's like you just want to go through the game and maybe we'll set the game to where the only conflicts you have are the ones that are required for narrative and the rest of them are just... It's like using Repel in Pokemon and just walking through the grass without having to worry about a Pokemon messing with you. Exactly. So... This is kind of on that where uh, I remember Blake had mentioned he played it that way. And I found that so weird because I'm like, you know, the fun to me in this game, to me, again, is kind of looking at the gameplay where it actually does come into strong RPG elements. And that's in perfecting your build based off of the way that you like to play. Mm-hmm. And that is like a big component to being able to play the game on the hardest difficulty is knowing how to min-max your chipset. And, of course the chipset being a, a cool, again, narrative reason for you to be able to go in and change stuff. It's like, oh, you're an Android. You put these chips in to benefit the way that you play, and then you go from there. But that is a big part of the game to me and a lot of the fun. And a lot of the ways that you start to realize the game can kind of be switched up and played in different ways and with different builds, almost like, a, I won't say completely like a Diablo, but to a degree where you're like, oh, I'm going to make a thing where I put out massive damage I can't take very much damage, but even though I take damage pretty quickly whenever I do, I am set up to where every hit and every kill that I make gains me so much health that it's almost impossible to die. And that was the build that I chose to go with this time yeah. uh, whenever I was playing. I was like, you know what? Last time I did a crazy strength build where I would just demolish through everything. Um, but I was like, this time I'm going to be kind of fragile and just see what happens when every time I do kill something and hit something, I get a percentage of that back. And it's pretty cool. The only thing I would have liked to see is the ability, like some Diablo builds where it's like you can hurt yourself to hurt the enemies around you because you know that when you do, you kind of create the cycle of you kill them so you get health back so that you can just repeat the cycle. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But that's a big part of the game for me is like that style of gameplay. And I do think that when you look at the gameplay for this, it's clearly modeled after the first game, but it's sped up. It's 60 frames per second, no matter where you're playing the game. That was a really important thing, and I think they've done a great job of making a world that I think looks pretty good while making sure that they hit a consistent 60 frames per second target. And looking at all that stuff come together, it feels weird anytime a, a game that I think has actually great combat mechanics, like God of War and Horizon, and I think even Days Gone finally added it, to be like, oh, you just want to play the story. And it's not to say that you shouldn't do that because of like gatekeeping or anything. I mean, yeah, if you if that's how you want to play the game, then absolutely, you play the game however you want. Sure. But it's weird for me to hear someone be like, yeah, that's how I wanted to play the game. <laughs> I don't really know how to say it better than that. Okay, well, that's the thing is, that's not how I wanted to play the game. The reality is, had we not been recording this podcast, I wouldn't have played it. Yeah, you would have dipped out. Yes, I would have left before the first playthrough ended so (laughs) yeah that's so crazy so i mean like 
as the best way to dive in, I mean, like what were your, if you had to like really quantify the problems that you had with the combat, what was it that just made you feel like it didn't click or that it was, if it, if it wasn't that it didn't click and you just think it was literally outright bad, what is it that you viewed as just bad? I don't know. Again, there are so many variations in what you can do in this game where maybe my chips weren't set up properly or maybe I didn't have the right weapons. But I found the combo system basically not there. I didn't feel like I was able to do, I don't know, square, triangle, square, square, triangle kind of stuff or that kind of stuff. So inherently it was boring because there was nothing to learn for me. I thought that at a certain point I got to a point where I could hold R1 and press L1 and kill everything, which again, not the ideal way to play, but when it's there, it's there. Yeah, and you can certainly make a build that's all about being ranged. Yeah, I just, I didn't find it engaging. And then, I guess this is more of a story thing, but the way I was viewing the story, I didn't even want to fight. So the fact that I kept having to fight was annoying me even more with the combat. So it was kind of this thing that was building onto itself where it was like, I don't want to fight because I want to let all these robots live. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's it's almost hard to talk about gameplay without also occasionally talking about the story. <laughs> yeah, because that was the thing is the 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 story is very much telling you like these robots are sentient and they don't want to fight, which I guess some of the random ads aren't. That's the way I interpreted it anyway. But a lot of the story is kind of trying to tell you like these machines are not your enemy. And then it handicaps that that narrative by every time you walk out into the desert, there's 60 machines that are coming at you at all times. And that's the thing. I think, ironically, if this had less fighting, I wouldn't have minded the gameplay as much. But because it was exposed to me so often and I found it not particularly engaging, it got to a point by the time I was finished with the first playthrough, I was completely done fighting things and i was over it because i just didn't find any meaningful progression in my skills playing it you know that's where you, you could make the argument of well every game is that right every game is the repeat of 15 seconds i don't remember who said that but somebody did say that maybe blazinski but you find 15 seconds of fun and you repeat that for 30 hours this game didn't do that for me right yeah, I, I'm not sure who said the 15 seconds of fun and then you kind of, that's, it's all about your gameplay loop. When you find the one that works or a few that work, you just continue to move them through and try to exactly. find interesting ways to do them. Yeah, and I mean, going back to, and again, it's hard not to completely brush against story, but uh, you are right. I mean, like, whenever you're going through, it, it's just to kind of give like my first playthrough versus my second one, right? I think it depends on what you came off of playing too when you go into playing these things. I can't remember what I had played before Nier Automata. I think it might have been Horizon Zero Dawn. Fair. Or I, don't, I played it when it first came out, and it and Horizon came out very similar times. But you're right. One of the big core components of the story is the story doing so much to tell you, like, at least not all robots are bad. But then your characters and their mission is telling you, no, they're bad. Yeah. And so the first time I was playing it, I remember just killing everything. I got a big pivotal moment of the game thinking back on it. And I remember whenever the first time I played it and I got through and started slowly being like, wait, what am I doing? I thought differently on it. But my first time playing, when you go to the uh, theme park, mm -hmm. whenever I went, there's a part where you're going through and you know, you walk in, you see all the robots singing and dancing and I killed them all. Immediately, yeah. No questions asked. 
Okay. Um, and then I kept going and I kept killing everything I could kill. And then I got to a point where you go through and you see the tank and nine S makes a remark to, to be about how it could be dangerous and you need to kill it. And so I was like, good point, kill it. <laughs> so I just mm-hmm. destroyed it and fought it. And I remember this time when I was going through, I didn't kill anything in the, besides the actual boss. I didn't fight anything unless it attacked me. That was the way I played this whole game. At the and, amusement park you're talking? I'm sorry, just so I can kind of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the okay. amusement part was one of them, but that was a clear example of where my first time playing, I was just murdering everything without second thought because definitely it's a game and that's kind of what you get into doing. It's like, oh, I kill them and I get, I, I learn more. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, playing it again, I was like, I'm pretty sure you could have done this, but I, I actually really liked the ability to kind of go through and be like, oh, I didn't have to kill anything. The game doesn't force your hand. And it's more interesting for me from a gameplay perspective, but also a kind of player connection perspective that the game doesn't make you kill any of those things. And yet I pretty much killed them all my first time through when I originally played the game. So it's like, oh, I'm the monster. The game didn't make me do anything. It gave me the tools at my disposal, and then I did them. And I bring that up because while speaking on gameplay and then you know potential dissonance with the story, to a degree at least, or more dissonance with how the story connects not to the characters within the story, 9S and 2B, but more how the story connects to you, the player outside of the world, it does feel like, well, why are you doing this? And that is on purpose to a degree. And that's a, something that he brings up in the, in the first game as well. Mm-hmm. But from a gameplay perspective, I really liked coming back around to it and realizing that, Oh, the game is set up to where you don't have to fight anything. Like you don't have to kill these things besides the bosses, but the bosses are attacking you. So I did, I won't say a pacifist run because that's not really it, but I did a defend myself run. If it attacked me, I attacked it. <laughs> if it didn't attack me, we both went on about our business and yeah. There's a part in the gameplay, and again, this it's all so pulled together that it's hard not to. Mm-hmm. When you're playing as 9S, I don't know if you did it. Uh, there are a couple of them. I, w- I climbed up the radio tower, Yeah. and there's a robot standing there, and you can talk to him, but he doesn't say anything, but he has a quest marker. And so I hacked into him. And then as I hacked into him and did a little mini game for hacking, I'm hearing him like question life and the the <clears> meaning <throat> of uh, life and all this stuff and kind of go through it. And then I end the hacking thing and we have a conversation between 2B and 9S about what's going on and how he can't really be meaning it and all that stuff. And then I thought to myself, oh, well, if I hack him again, I can learn more about the way he's thinking. So I hacked him again, went through the mini game shot the thing and as soon as it was over it blew him up and i felt so bad <laughs> i felt terrible yeah and uh i had another opportunity where one did something and then i was like can't hack him again <laughs> yeah don't kill this poor dude so seeing all those things come together i think I, i'm at the point where we've talked about to a degree what you didn't like on it and i and i guess that's fair like you said the game introduces itself with the abilities for all these things as well as the ability to do like horizon and all these other games did where you basically just move the analog stick of where you're supposed to go and jump occasionally and we'll handle the rest for you for the most part yes now this game takes that to an extreme with like you said auto dodge auto heal auto hack I think it, you can pretty much auto everything and you're just running yes, and it's like, yay. Um, as much as I like that, the ability for that is there. Just speaking on what I loved about it was, you know, the ability to make different builds 
and I really liked how precise the gameplay was and how kinetic it felt. In a, and again, this isn't comparing it to the first game. It's impossible for me to play this game and not compare it to the first game because they made such an effort to make it a much better version of the first game's combat, including the pod. The pod is just a, a tech version of Grimoire Vice from the first game who shot out like little magic bullets. In this case, you're shooting real bullets. Mm. So when you look at how all these systems come together and are really perfected, in my opinion, for what the original did, I view it as like, oh, they really nailed what they should have been going after. <laughs> and I think when you don't have the context of the first game and how just baseline serviceable it was for you to get through a, a fantastic story, I think that the first game still had fun gameplay but it wasn't great. And that's a big thing about the remaster coming up is that the combat has been reworked so that when you come off of automata and go to play it, you're not like, what the hell? Yeah. But for me, I think that there's a lot of, I don't want to say nostalgia, but I guess technically that's what it is. It's built around that on top of looking and being like, Oh, okay. This is kind of what I wish the first game would have been because the curse of Yoko Taro games have always been mediocre to just okay. Gameplay really great stories. And I felt like, and a lot of people felt like coming into this one, this is the first time you got a Yoko Taro story with really polished, great gameplay and performance. Because another thing that happens in Yoko Taro games tends to be the issue of the games running at sub 30 frames per second fairly often. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was fun playing a game that was pretty much always locked to 60, felt really responsive and snappy, but felt like an evolution of the first game. But while talking about gameplay and started to try and to kind of transition in the story, something I'm wondering if it was as much on you, I think to some degree, I know you were affected by it, but was how a lot of the ways that this game ends up playing mechanics back into its story, like we kind of talked about earlier, or at least as I mentioned earlier, where you have this setup to where the game is often having mechanics that line up with the world and the lore in such a way that they feel connected in a way that I think a lot of modern games don't, okay. at least a lot of modern AAA games. So small examples of that is like everything being tied to your OS system. Like you, you have a system that goes through, you have a chipset and your chipset has basic things you have to have. What can you see? What can you hear? Can you attack? You have all these different things, and then you have your legitimate just OS chip. And if you remove it, you die. Yeah, I did that. And then you build off of that. So small stuff like that comes into this game to where I feel like a lot of the mechanics of the game tie strongly into the story. And one of those is the saving system, which I know gave you some grief. But as a whole, with what's going on there, how did you feel about the saving system? because I don't think it's inherently that much different than a lot of JRPGs where you still have to manually save. But also, how did you feel, even if it technically annoyed you at times, how do you feel about games strongly implementing their mechanics and their story together to where you feel like the mechanics in the story are interweaved? Um, I thought the saving system was fine. One time I got screwed over by the save system, but it was more a PS5 OS issue. In yeah. my opinion, the second time, and me and you argued about this, I think the game doesn't communicate with the player at all unless you talk to the strange resistance woman, which I never did because I had no use for tutorials 20 hours into the game. But in terms of the gameplay into the story, I did not mind it for the most part, except I thought 
it ruined what should have been one of the most poignant scenes in the game and turned it into one of the worst times I had playing the game, <laughs> which Ooh. was um, 2B's death, basically. Okay. So that actually does tie in the gameplay because, I mean, that is a direct result of gameplay at that point, at least as far as you view it, mm. uh, hampering your experience otherwise. I'm assuming that's what you meant, that kind of part, right? Okay. No, that, that ties in as well. I mean, I think that the game across the board, the save system clearly ties into that. The asymmetric, I guess, multiplayer, it's not really multiplayer though, but it's almost like the Dark Souls system that comes into it is a cool way where they have the asymmetric assistance form of multiplayer where you can find dead androids and other players and able to retrieve them and get temporary boost from like their chipsets uh, or you can revive them and have a temporary ally for some time um, and it's you know brushing into that kind of idea of like a souls like thing where it's like oh okay you can see the death spot of someone else and see how they died and learn how they died you can see that this is clearly a dangerous area you can benefit from the message system but in this it's more you die you leave behind a body and you can leave it behind a message if you want and it all comes together and to me, that makes sense because, like, right, you're an android, and I like playing into the story of, like, you're the game's always talking about, for narrative purposes, the importance of backing up your personality data and all your information and whatnot. And when you die, you leave behind your former shell, but your personality data gets pushed into a new body, a shell. And then you can go off and find your original body and refuse with it to get all your trip set back. Otherwise, you just don't have that chip set because it was connected to that android, so you lose them all. I like that kind of tie. I think it makes sense. And I think that the part where you feel like you got screwed, and we were not talking about quite the 2B moment yet, yes. but late game, when you're starting into route C and D, which run pretty much concurrent, you play kind of an epilogue of that run through where you play as 2B and 9S. And when you're going through, you get to a point where the bunker in the story comes down. And with it, the finality of your life, I think this is where maybe you being more disconnected from the gameplay because of your annoyance with it may sure. have just removed you more. I don't know. I feel like for me, both times I played the game, it was clear to me that, oh, the bunker's gone. The story's beaten to my head that the only reason backups exist is because of the bunker. If the bunker's gone, then if I die, my consciousness can't be reloaded into something. Sure. I think you're technically right to a degree. I think that the game does tell you to talk to the resistance lady and puts a big thing above her head. And I of course ignored that even my first playthrough as well, because I didn't feel like I needed it, mm -hmm. but the game does try to tell you something. And then past that, I think the game does enough with its story that if you're really locked in to the gameplay and story and how the, all these things are coming together, I think a lot of players suddenly messed with, Oh, my, more infinite nature is now gone. And I think the story leans into that, you know, when you start learning more about what's going on, it's like, Oh, this is, you know, if things don't go right for my buddy nine S here, he's gone forever. <laughs> and I think that that's a weird disconnect that happens to based on how you're feeling about the game. You're right. I guess there is a way the game could have handed that information just directly to you. When you start the thing being like, as soon as two B's death happens, you go, the game just comes up with a screen and says, now you have to save. If you don't save, you lose all progress because you can't go back and run back to your body. I don't even necessarily agree with that. I don't think the game needed to do a screen. The game has this pod who is talking to you the entire time. Mm -hmm. And the pod could have said, "You, there are no more backups. They say this. Like, you know this. 
But as I said to you when we were talking about it, I've played 30 hours of this game where if I pa- if I pass away, you respawn. And, I, and that's how you, you're made to play games. So to me, the game never gave me a clear indication of if you die, you have to reload. You know, and I, I get, sure, maybe that's on me, but they could have just had the pod say, you should save your memory more often. Yeah. They could have done all of this stuff. Instead, they give you these story beats, which which were great. Like I said to you, I love the story of this game, but they give you these story beats and they expect you to infer gameplay mechanics from the story beats. And I don't think that's good design. I understand that... Maybe if I'd been more connected to the world and what it was building, I would have known to do that. But when there's no indicator of that, that's a problem. It would be the same as kind of saying, well, like, well, GTA doesn't tell you how to how to shoot a gun. You just, if you watch the story, you'll figure it out. And I don't, I don't mean to be kind of uh, pedantic or anything to you, but, like, I don't think the story giving you loose indications of consequences is an excuse for not spelling out you might lose four hours of progress if you don't go to a save point because i was binging the game right at that point there's no reason to save at least in my head because to me i'm one of those people where like i save if i'm if i'm getting off and i'm playing something else so that was my biggest problem with it you know they they had the pod who could have just said at this point, it is required that you'll re—I don't know. They could have made some in-world explanation of you need to reload an old consciousness, and it will take you back to where that consciousness was. Very simple. Instead, the game doesn't do anything to let you indicate that. Okay, so I mean, you're—it's—it's it's a mixed thing where I have a couple of things. I mean, to a degree, you're right if you say that, but you can't outright say that because the point of the actual narrative happening there is that death is final. Now, you can't have a line that legitimately says, like, save more often so you can be taken back to this place. That would ruin the consistency of the story within itself in the world. Now, you're still right. You know, a good example is, like, there's a part where you're running around as A2, and A2 now has pod 042. Yes. And he's saying, like, suggestion. This is what you should do. Yeah. And he could have just easily been, like, uh, suggestion. But again, technically, I guess anything he says doesn't quite make sense because he can't say back up. You can't back yeah. up. There is no backup. Well, he okay. can't say anything that for the moment without breaking the fourth wall comes in. And now maybe that's where you introduce the option for the game, which does eventually break the fourth wall. I don't necessarily know that you got there, uh, but there is a part in the game that breaks the fourth wall. And you could have yeah. introduced that earlier at that point and been like somehow have it to where you get a single screen of the pod coming up, you know, when they had to do those pod communication screens where it's both yeah. of them and have the pod come up. He's not facing sideways. He's facing directly at you. Light shines down on them. And suddenly he goes player and then yeah. says all of his but, same stuff in a very pod like fashion. I think it would have worked. I agree with you that there is a way they could have made it work. It's on that point of, where I, I disagree with you entirely because if you go talk to the strange resistant woman, one of the bullet points on her thing is this game is too hard. Yeah. So to me, that right there puts everything you're saying into question to me because that right there is a fourth wall break. That is yes. the game yes. itself acknowledging that it is a game. 
So while I agree it might have broken the story, the game itself is breaking the story. And even if you don't want the pod to say it, when you reload, the resistance woman could walk up to you and say it because she's already breaking the fourth wall. So she could have been the one to deliver the message of, hey, you need to do it. I also think that would work. Yeah. Or they could have forced a conversation with her like, hey, there's a quest marker that says you need to go see the resistance woman. And then her incidental dialogue is you should save more because she does all that. Her entire thing, her entire point outside of being a trophy vendor is. Is she the trophy vendor? To be, she is. Her wow. entire point is to be a manual for the game. Yes. Yeah, so she, you're right. She is a fourth breaking, a fourth wall breaking character, and that is her purpose. So they, you could have that be the first quest step in Route C. Yeah, that's my thing. Is if you're going to force a gameplay change that is that drastic, to where, like, say you did A2 and 9S, and then you died at the end of 9S's story, and you have to do that entire thing over again because you didn't realize oh, they're making this a factor into real death and starting over. I don't think there's really a good defense of that other than, well, you should have been paying attention, which again is objectively true. But I was paying attention to the story because I have to talk to you about the story, right? And there was no indication to me other than there's no backups, which to me is just those are consequences for the character. You know, if I'm writing a book and I say, well, Sam and Dean can't come back from the dead. It's not like if you, if they die in the book, the book lights on fire and you have to buy a new one, you know? Yeah. But I guess to, to go back towards one of the other things that I think is interesting. And I think it may tell me to a degree some, and it may not be true, but out of curiosity, it makes me think of why you may like on paper, the idea of the souls games and not, it's something that you said that I personally really love when games do is when they don't hold your hand and then you, you're you left to infer things based off the game. And the reason I say that is the entire Souls-like genre is based off of inferring everything through the, the gameplay and the story. Uh, yeah. I mean, pretty much everything that those games are about is not telling you anything and just letting you go in and be like, well, this is how you do it. And yeah. a good example of that is the death system, right? Sure. You start up a Souls game, you're running through, you die. You Let's say you play for six hours, mm-hmm. you die, you never spent any of your souls, and suddenly, oh, the game didn't tell you you were going to lose your souls until you just did. Yeah. And then it's like, okay. Then you go through and you die again. <clears throat> it's like, oh, I lost, I died again. I lost all my souls forever. <laughs> yeah. It's, my, my point being is that I inherently have a different opinion i think on it being inherently bad design to not have to tell people gameplay things i just think it comes down onto how you feel about and it, i'm trying to think of a better word because it, it i don't mean it in the pejorative sense but the way that people typically mean it and they do say it in a pejorative sense is the game holding your hand Right, and so but, since I can't think of a better phrase than that right now, we're just going to stick with that with the non-pejorative use. So, <clears throat> in that sense, I personally do like when a game doesn't quite tell me everything I'm supposed to do, and I'm left to infer things because I feel like it connects me with the game more, and I sure. don't feel like so much on autopilot. And I think that doubles down why in this particular game, the idea of having an ultrafied version of the game just playing itself for you 
is so shocking to me. It's not shocking because of who did it. I think the fact that this is a Yoko Taro game and that he does weird stuff all the time, like letting you buy trophies, is all par for the course in that particular regard. But it's one of those things where you can't ever say anybody's playing any of these games wrong because it's almost impossible to play these games wrong. But I personally enjoyed that all of those things were understood by me by nature of just being at one with the story. Now, you're right. For certain people that just that doesn't mesh with them, you're creating a barrier of entry to this game. And when that barrier of entry comes in 20 hours into the game, there's more of a reason to have a valid complaint of now this game is something different than what I came into it being. So I, I think that your argument's not entirely unfair. I just think that different people are going to land on it differently based off of what they like about games. And I do think the game does a decent job of very early on continuously stating in menus that saving is a very important part of this game and that you should do it often. So just because you say a modern game is set up to where you're binging it, you're just going to keep playing it. Well, that's because most modern games auto save all the time and you only final save when you're getting off. But in a game that constantly tells you, Hey, if you don't save, you lose progress. See, but that's, I guess where I disagree with you and going back to dark souls as your example from minute one, if you die, you lose your souls. From minute one to minute, I'm not going to do the math, but 30 hours in, you don't. when you save, you reload. So inherently, I, that's that's part of my point is I don't think, I get where you're coming from on that argument, but I still don't think it works because the game holds your hand on saving and reloading up until it doesn't. And it releases, it's, it's like a dad pushing their kid on a bike and then when they get to the tall hill, letting them Let go. Let it go. Yeah. And like I, I did, I mean, I, I did give that, I mean, in the sense of that the game 20 hours in suddenly does change and it becomes a different game. So if right. you're somebody who likes the game being a little more handholdy and you appreciate that aspect, then yeah, you're there. And I now just, just, to, just to show a different viewpoint, right? Because part of the gameplay for me is about min-maxing my chipset. One of the first things I do anytime I go in there is I take off... Uh, I take off item log where it doesn't tell me what I'm picking up because I don't need to know that. I can just figure that out whenever I'm actually worrying about crafting stuff. Uh, I take off it giving me objective text. All I need is to know where the objectives add on my mini map, which doesn't cost anything. That's just part of your normal OS. I take off um, the save thing, which gives you a upper right corner reminder of when saving is near because I look at the mini map often. I'll see the little save bunker symbol, not the bunker symbol, but you know, the, whatever those things are called. And I know that one of the things this game actually does, and again, doesn't even tell you, but it just does is as long as you're near one of those, you can hit start and hit quick save at any time. You don't have to run to it and hit save. And it's funny. A lot of people think that you have to run to it, hit the button and then hit quick save. You can do it from your menu, but I take all that off. So I don't know if it's because of all the God of war of past that I've played where I just know that when a game says you're supposed to save, it's like anytime you're around a save point, you just save but mm-hmm. it is, you're right though. The moment that the game suddenly becomes different than the early days of, oh, you can die and go get your chipset back from your yeah. body and you don't lose any progress so long as it wasn't that you turn the game off without saving. You don't have to save without losing progress unless you're going to turn the game off. But now suddenly, if you die at all, you lose progress, which is more like a classic God of War. So it is a switch up. And I mean... Yeah, I, I guess, guess I appreciate the fact that they're bold enough to do a switch up and it didn't negatively impact me, but it was something that 
it was so the way you also worded it to me surprised me so much because I thought that you meant I've not died in that game in the end ever. So I, I mean, I didn't die in Route C or D on any of my playthroughs. Yeah, and I, I should own up to the fact that I died because because of, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where I didn't like the gameplay so much that I was auto playing it and. I literally put the controller down during a fight and was looking at something else. So that's why I died. It's my fault that I died. It's not the game's <laughs> fault. But well, at least you'll be honest for that, you know? Yeah. But yeah, but then again, like you said, the game <clears throat> technically allows you to do that to a degree, so Right, and that's the one that's a issue with that system itself is that it almost implies that you don't have to look at the game, but you definitely do, at least to heal, you know, so at least to get away long enough for you to have the opportunity to auto heal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but when looking at that, cause I was going to ask earlier, how'd you die if you were playing on super easy? <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I literally was typing on my computer and I went, Oh, it's loading. Wait, loading. What? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and I get it, but it was one of those things where when you did it, I was like, huh, I guess I took for granted that I didn't die, but there was always that thing in the back of my head of like, I understood that if I died, I had to restart from my last save. But that's just a, do you like that kind of stuff in games or not? Yeah. And can, can I ask one question? Cause it almost, sure. it, I'm kind of curious now. Yeah. Doesn't the fact that it loads you back into the save break that too? Because what do you mean? Argu- break, the, break the story? Yes. Because arguably, and I might've actually respected this, even if I didn't like it. Arguably once the bunker goes down, if you die, the game should end and it should be over. You shouldn't have a save file, right? Because if you can't load anything, why can you load a save? So if I can load a save, why can't you just put me back into a body before the fight started? Which, yes, would require auto-saving and some checkpointing. But yeah, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Because I yeah. feel like that point kind of breaks it to a little bit there. Where it's not it's not an issue I had. I had much bigger yeah. issues than that. The accessibility of permadeath, basically. <laughs> now that we're and, talking and about it. it. Yeah, now, here's the thing. I think the difference is, is that the reason that you can't go on playing the game you were is because you don't have the ability to be put in new bodies. So the way that the story was describing it before is like you leave that body behind, your consciousness and information gets uploaded into a new body, you go on and you can either choose to grab your old body or not. Now, when the bunker's gone, essentially what's going on is... It's not, it, I would agree with you to the extent that by playing the game and dying, if it was that you died and then you went back to your last save, but you had everything that you had done up into that point to where it was like all you did was die and then come back somewhere else, then fine. But the, the world, as far as you're knowing it, it's ending and then you're having to start back at the last known thing that you have from a game. The save doesn't really play into the game story at all until you get to the last ending, ending E, where it's all about that, that whole part of ending E is about flipping it over to the player, breaking the fourth wall and being like you player, what do you want to do? And that I think is the only time that the save should be counted as part of the actual game story structure. So when you look at it elsewise, it's not like the world is pretending that you were still there and that everything you'd done was fine. You kept all your level, but then suddenly you're over here, which is not what any game is like, but that's why I don't view it as specifically story breaking within this world as much as something saying, Hey, you've got to save so that you can come back. Now, again, if you do it the right way where you break the fourth wall and set it up, I think you can do it. I absolutely love the idea actually of the pod 
suddenly turning to you and talking to you and being like, you know, literally just saying player and going through and saying that. I even like the idea of having the fourth wall breaking character of the woman stand up and be like, walk over to you and almost not look at 9S or anything. It's like she almost looks directly at the camera at you. You don't even see <laughs> the other characters. Yeah. I would love that. And I think that that would be a perfectly fine way to work that into the story. But that's about, I mean, I, I know the save thing is a, is a big issue, but let's go into something else and where the game's take on being an Android and what all the things about dying and having going through like a virus is like impacts gameplay. So I know which one you're talking about, and I know that you were frustrated by it, partially because I think you had to do it twice. So it was like even more frustrating. Oh, more than twice. Wait a minute, what? Because I kept dying. Oh yeah, you because told of me. how annoying it was. Which is another thing that I don't completely understand. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, I, I, you said that, and I was like, I don't even know how you die in that spot. So you die because you're being chased by two. So this is what was happening to me. I was being chased by two robots the entire time. So I was able to run and then two be glitches and she can't run. And yeah. during those times, they would hit me. And when they would hit me, they would back me into a corner. And I couldn't get out of the corner because I couldn't run and jump. You know, I think you just got struck by the bad juju with this game. I think so. That's definitely possible. Because I was talking to Saul about some of your issues too. Like another one I'll give as a clear example of something that doesn't pack gameplay, right? Is your minimap issue. Um, yeah, I hated it. And for some reason that you were not able to find the very clear, straightforward, and completely reasonable continuation of leave Pascal's village, look like 30 degrees right from where you're currently standing, and there's a big tower and a bridge, and it takes you exactly where you want to go. And yet you message me and are like, Getting to the Forest Kingdom is annoying because you have to climb a big tree. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and and I then think he that... shoots me a video. And I yeah. looked at two more videos of people doing the same thing. And I stopped and said, what are people doing? <laughs> and I, it makes you think, like, was I the exception? In yeah. the, or, you know, was I the exception or is everyone else the exception? And I don't know. I don't know the answer. Because the, the problem, especially there, was like, even it's definitely the videos that fucked me over and made me think it was worse than it was but at the same time i had to resort to a video because i couldn't figure out where to go so which again is something that's so weird i never had that problem across either playthrough like of course yeah. replaying it i'm already familiar with the map it makes even more sense but i i never got stuck anywhere in the game even my first <laughs> play so when you messaged me saying that i thought it was so interesting so i don't know i i, I don't know if it's just somehow some way you kept getting like snake bit as they say yeah i don't know it kept confusing me and then on that part i don't even remember ever having anything chase me I, i've never died on that part so it did feel right to me it felt like oh i'm just trying to make it just a little bit further a little bit further a little bit further and it almost reminds me of the part of the gameplay when you're going toward the end of outray uh, route a and route b where you are damaged and you're having to walk with that super elongated health bar as well while you're yeah. fighting Eve. So when you're going through that, it reminded me of that. It's like a pull through back to that. It's like you are an Android. You're facing the limitations of an Android when something actually knocks you out of your ability to keep going. So it, it was, I mean, I get it though, but those are things I liked. I liked it. Oh yeah, I am an Android. When I get hurt, I'm having like visual glitches and my motor functions aren't very good. I, my attack functions aren't there. So I can't attack. Or I can partial attack, but now, oh, range combat's also down because that's gone. 
I liked that stuff. And again, I don't know if that ties into how much more connected to the world I was. And also, I don't know if I would have gotten annoyed at that stuff if I had to keep redoing it. Yeah, I think the thing is, I didn't mind it except the 2B part. And sure. the the thing is, that I could have told... I guess, and this is another problem, my problem with the navigation is I could have been going the wrong way and taking a longer route to where I was supposed to go that wouldn't have taken me by any robots, but I didn't, you know? Mm -hmm. And that that's part of my issue with the navigation is there's almost no reason other than not wanting to do it why 2B doesn't have an arrow pointing her where to go. Not that I want that, because like you said, I don't actually want my games to hold my hand. It's just that one instance where I'm like, maybe it could have coddled my fingers a little bit. But <laughs> Do the old Dead Space slash uh, Ghost of Tsushima indirect thing where you hit a button and it yeah. gives you a line or wind as the way she She's an android. Realistically, she should have a GPS built in her head as a starting feature, you know? Like... Just that, that was part of it. And realistically, it didn't affect me all that much by the time I was done because I knew my way around the map, but it was really messing me up in my first playthrough where I'm like, okay, this map tells me to go here and I go here and there's something blocking my way. That was where my frustration was. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I think that one of the common problems about 3D games in general is I've never really seen the perfect 3D map or even 2D top-down map for a 3D world. I feel like one of the big advantages that 2D games have is that it's so much easier to take a 2D game, a 2D world, even if it's just a 3D world that's being rendered in top-down, yeah. and put that on something that can represent it so much easier. Yep. And while I don't think that this map is by any means bad, I think it's servable, serviceable, more or less works, and I never had any problems getting anywhere, I'm not going to sit here and act like this is the perfect map. If you actually need the map to try and intuit where you're going, you're often going to see things that make you go, wait, shouldn't I be able to go through here? Like you mentioned, it looks like there's a part in Pascal's village where you should be able to just walk over and suddenly you should be in one of the parts that shows is lit up for the forest kingdom. Yes. But you can't. Yep. And and that's a fair, valid point. I, I do find it weird, but I didn't run into that so much as I never even thought of that until you said it. And I opened the map <laughs> and said, well, I'll be damned. It kind of does look like you should be able to walk yeah. right on through there. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that happens with these kind of things is I think every bad experience that you have continues to build up. And then I think you start to actually view everything in a much worse way. And I know yeah. I've had it happen to me. I've had it happen to me with music and movies and all sorts of stuff where something happens that either bothers you or games happen where you're like, you feel like even if it's just that you're unlucky, it still annoys you enough to be like, okay, I just almost don't care. Mm -hmm. Then you have this feeling of like, well, I have to play this game because we're going to talk about it and you feel like you owe it. And then you're just continuing to build that hate up. <laughs> Yeah. And that's unfortunate because a lot of your things seem like isolated incidents and it just seemed like you were one of the weird people that got stacked with basically every isolated problem you could have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's why it's hard for me because I would recommend someone play this game. I, it just didn't work for me in the way that I had hoped it would. Sure. So, uh, another thing that kind of goes into, and this was technically kind of fourth wall breaking, but in yeah. a, it really wasn't because it was almost like it was trying to tell you that the menu system existed within the Android OS. How did mm -hmm. you feel about the, how the game handled setting up your brightness 
and all that different stuff. Like you having to turn on your self-destruct feature and all that, where it was almost like nine S was guiding you through setting your stuff up. It was fine. I didn't love it, but it was mostly because I know how to do that. You know, so it was one of those situations where I'm like, I don't need to do this. I've already done this. And then it does it like three times. So I was like, guys, (laughs) come on. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, you know, the thing about it is we keep going through that. We've touched on a lot of the ways that the stuff goes through. But one of the things we haven't talked about where I think it's a big way in which story and gameplay come together in the most ultimate way. And this is going to sound kind of, I'm interesting how, how like what the fuck you're going to be when I say this, but this is one of the things I actually really like about this game. And I think it's one of the key aspects that if you pick up on it and you're vibing with it, then I think it is one of the things that can, it's one of the multiple things this game has going for it that has the potential to kind of make you be like, Oh, this is really cool in a way that often games don't do. And it's, it's almost like it's the ultimate way of breaking the fourth wall without breaking the fourth wall. It's really just tying you as the player into the story in a very different way. So one thing that comes up in the story Mm -hmm. um, is the game speaks pretty often, actually across multiple things on the need for a God for which to be your motivation to fight for. And the androids specifically have their God in the game's humans. But of course, as we know, when you're playing through nine S on route B, you learn that the humans are extinct and the commander specifically gives you that line of like, you know, every, everybody needs a God to fight for. And, you know, it it can be an actual divine being. And if you actually take that out of the game and look at your own life, I mean, people have their own motivations and it's typically motivations by, Oh, I want to be, I'm going to sit here and make music like crazy and do all this. Well, why? Because I want to be rich and famous. Oh, okay. That's so the, the power and the money is your God and everything that you're doing is motivated by this God that you're giving. So in the game, whenever you have the potential or whenever you get to the part where eventually all of our protagonists or at least the ones that matter, nine S and two B in regards to the bunker, learn of the humans extinction. And at that point, the God is gone. And as far as the game has left us to believe from what it keeps constantly trying to tell you from the androids, like, you know, we are no emotions. This is our goal. This is our thing. Technically, their God is gone. So they shouldn't mm-hmm. have any reason to fight, except really their God isn't gone. Because in the grand scheme of things, we as actual humans out in the real world behind the screen take on the role of the God of which they're fighting for. And every time that we go to play the game, we're giving the character's existence for like a period of time. And the reason I even bring this up is because the game does a lot to talk about nihilism, existentialism, existential, whatever. I hate that freaking word, but you get what I'm saying where it's all about, you know, what is it to exist? What's the importance behind existing? And a lot of this is tied into things that you see from the philosophers that the game ends up mentioning. And so I don't know how much you look into philosophy, I'm not going to act like I know a lot of it, but I do know some philosophy and this game got me interested in more, but I'm assuming that you're aware of who Pascal was named after, right? Mm-hmm. Blaise uh, Pascal. I believe so, but why don't you just tell me again? Okay, well, it's Blaise Pascal. It's he, yeah. he was a, he's technically actually, I think a mathematician, but he's one of those like, you know, where everybody was a multitude of things, but he was a philosopher. John Paul, who is one of, I know your favorite characters throughout the game. He was, yeah. John Paul and Simone are actually both named and 
to a degree modeled after real world counterparts in uh, John Paul Sartre, uh, Sartre, whatever his name is, and then Simone de Beauvoir. <laughs> French names. Uh, anyway, they had an open relationship and they were, well, John Paul was a philosopher and I think Simone was like a writer. Uh-huh. If I'm remembering right, I think she was an author. Um, anyway, they had an open relationship. And if you actually look at what's going on with John Paul's storyline in this game, it's about him basically going around with multiple women and going through all of them. Uh, yeah. And I think the game has a lot of ties without saying it incompletely. It has a lot of ties to the idea of like Nietzsche and his views on nihilism. And I think you see that pretty strongly run through the androids and their self-centered needs and actions. So when you look at all this philosopher stuff coming up and definitely the constant talk about what it means to exist and why you exist, the game kind of goes out to where when we turn the game on, these characters exist for this period of time. And we, in a sense, act as their God until we yeah. turn the system off or arrest it. Mm-hmm. And on a different level, you also have the androids who, despite what they say, do have enough emotion for them to set their own goals and build their own motivation to fight. So like 9S has his need to avenge 2B, even if it's irresponsible and ultimately irrational. But at the end of the day, we as the gods of this digital world, the little puppet masters, we are the ones who facilitate these actions. And we do these things regardless of the suffering we put the characters through. Because like realistically, I, I think it's a cool way to look at games. And have you ever been playing any kind of other game besides this and looked at a character and been like, why would this character do this? This is not a good thing for this character. But you're going to keep doing it because you want to play the actions out so that you can see the story. But in that sense... It's really you putting this character through the suffering. (laughs) And so for me, I like how this game kind of plays on that relationship to where we get to act as almost the gods of this world and the things that we push, push through and then what the impact of that is on whether or not free will does or doesn't exist, which I know is a big thing for you. And free will really comes into the game with ending E which is uh, something we can talk about. And I, I do want to go into what it is with you just because I think you No, yeah, I totally it. expected you to. That's totally fine. But I think, you know, the characters gain the closest thing they have to free will once the bunker is gone and their purpose is gone and their lives are more finite. But realistically, we're the ones going through and still pulling the strings of everything to see these things go out. So I think it's a cool way to kind of connect the player. And the reason I talk about that relationship to like, God and man and free will is because one of the big conversations around free will that me and you've had like over on midweek matinee and whenever yeah. we've had movies that talked about it is Nietzsche. One of his things is like in a world that has a God and all of its things are based off the morals of that God, then everything that happens is a result of that God. And when you think about what this game is in a big sense, if we take on the role, or even before that, the humans take on the role of the God and everything that happens is in direct response of for, uh, for the humans. You know, it's it's for the, the God of this game. And then whenever it comes on past that and we become the God, we're the ones pushing the actions and it goes back towards us. And it's a cool way that this game kind of has a like a cyclical view on the way that it actually views everything it does with, and it has a ton of philosophy in it. It's a it bunch of different side quests that come into it. But I think the overarching theme is constantly about God and man and what it means to exist. Yeah. 
And I, I personally really like that. So I don't know. Does that, did that sound crazy to you? No, nothing you said sounded crazy to me. And I will say the one example I can think of of another game like this that came to mind immediately was Undertale. I don't know if you played it, but I haven't. But I've I have got a friend who loves it, and I've had little things that I know that it does some of this stuff, and that's cool. Yeah, it yeah, I really like almost it. hits it harder than this game does in a lot of ways. But you should See, definitely it's cool. try. It's a great idea. <laughs> I do want to play Undertale. Maybe that's something we'll do on the on this show eventually. I have it, so you bang, can bang. We can. <laughs> <laughs> but. I mean, okay, so I know that you liked John Paul. I did like John Paul. What was it you For liked while. John Paul? Did you I ever finish was, his side quest? I didn't finish his side quest, but I did see his... I think I finished most of it. I just didn't return the letters. But I liked John Paul for a while until the story plays out and you realize that like he caused Simone to go nuts. And once I was like, oh, he's kind of a scummy dude... <laughs> So like, yeah, I liked him a little bit less than, but I thought he was just very funny because I like that spouting philosophy. And to me, starting off the game and hearing this just robot in a top hat spout off philosophy, I was like, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> so the Simone thing, I think, is meant to reference uh, their own personal relationship. So mm-hmm. I mentioned that John Paul and Simone in real life, the, their counterparts, had an open relationship with each other. And if I'm not mistaken, Simone had like a ton of different dudes. It was like, it, it was her thing was like, and in, in, she did it in excess. And if I'm not mistaken, she said something along the lines of like, the only reason she even did it as much as she did it is because John Paul insisted that they have an open relationship when she preferred for him being faithful to her. Yeah. So it's like, since he wanted an open relationship, she just took it to the extreme. And if you think about what this game does, it's a little bit of a different take on it, but John Paul tells her that she needs to be beautiful. And what she does is she strives for beauty and excess because he pushes it onto her. And I've always thought like, oh, that's a cool thing of a potential tie into the way they choose to build this story up. And I really think Simone's story is heartbreaking. I really like the way they choose to go about telling it. Uh, and those are some of those little small moments of the game dipping into like that text-based storytelling, yeah. um, as well as when you go through Devola and Popola's little backstory and you even get to make like decisions over what you do. Yes. I really like that. Um, there's a part of me that so strongly wants you to play the original Nier. <laughs> <laughs> and... I think you're going to hate it <laughs> from a gameplay standpoint. I think you will absolutely love it from a story standpoint. I'm going to watch the movie on YouTube, but I think you probably could. I mean, I, I don't know. It, it, these are kind of games where I feel like you're even supposed to suffer through the parts that may not be as good as the rest. You use, I don't the, know fu- why. use the word, use the word suffer. <laughs> yes. I use the word suffer purposely <laughs> because things that are worth doing, you sometimes have to suffer for. Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's what people say about childbirth, right? The yes. the, the, the the suffering of of labor, it, you, you're rewarded by the miracle of, of childbirth and and being a parent, miracle yeah, of really, life. Uh... But and I am by no means comparing playing a game <laughs> to the importance <laughs> of having a baby. Let me just clear that out <laughs> right now. Okay, but so we we're kind of talking about um, the way that this game goes about kind of experimenting with itself. And I think 
one of the big things for me here is what we're going back what I'm talking about where I wish you'd play the first one is I wish you could do it just to see the kind of connection between the two and how strongly they really aimed at trying to look at the ideas that the first game presented and just coming back and bringing them uh, almost either exactly how they were over or doing it with a slightly more polish or a twist on it. And I think that one of the things that that's cool about this game and all of this kind of coming together is that it shows that sometimes you can have the right audience at the wrong time. I don't necessarily know that gamers are more open to the ideas of Nier Automata by 2017 because I don't think other games do them that much. I mean, you, like you said, there are some other examples like Undertale and whatnot. But I think for a lot of people, it became a thing to where even though these games are so similar, and I think a lot of people who love Automata who just did not play the first one for whatever reason are going to play it and probably love it. It goes to show that sometimes you can release something that for all intents and purposes should be good and should do well, and it just doesn't because you released it at the wrong time for some reason, like some crazy reason. Mm. I do want to talk about the story with you. Sure. I, where I want to hear you spew positively about the game, because I think you have it in you, is specifically in Let's the see. story. So, yes. following story-wise, what were some of your favorite things, and what are the big moments that you think are worth covering? Because I know one of your big things about Persona 5 Royal is that you always feel like when you listen to people talk about it, they get through it too quickly and don't talk about the things you wanted to talk about. So <laughs> let's hear what you wanted to talk about in regard to this game. The big thing I can think of is just 9S's fall, I guess. Because he goes from being a really endearing character to being kind of, not I don't want to say terrible character, being significantly less likable. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you watch his sanity just kind of drain to a point where you're still kind of sympathetic, but also at the same time, you're like, I don't agree with you at all, bro. <laughs> yeah, and the one moment that really kind of made me check out on him is you're in the first tower. I wish I could remember the name. Not the soul box, but maybe the meat box. The meat box. Ah, nailed yes. it. When you're in the meat box and you hear the robot just saying, help me, and then he just, just stabs the thing. Like, God damn, man. Like, yeah. He was, he was the one throughout the game who was like, oh, maybe they do have minds of their own. And 2B is kind of the one who's resisting it. And then by the end of the game, it kind of flips where 2B gets it. And he's, I'm still going to kill all the machines. The machines are my enemy. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know what was weird about that is I actually feel like when you're playing the game and then playing it again, I feel like in a lot of ways both of the androids are like that, but I almost think 2B comes off as more cold to the enemy where he's more, if nothing else, even if it's just inquisitive about why they are the way they are, he's at least more like, what's going on here? But you do have yeah. those moments where the robots are screaming like, help me, and 2B's kind of like pausing because he's like, oh God, <laughs> like, uh -huh. what are we doing? And then 9S kind of comes back with a reaffirming like, they're robots, they don't know what they're saying, they're just spewing words, they don't know what they mean. There's a lot of parts of the game that do have that, but there are times where I feel like both of them come to a point where it's like, y'all are just some hating bastards because someone told you to hate them. <laughs> yeah, basically. So this is a curiosity because I know the way you did it was different than me, at least initially. I know you had to redo it, so I'm not sure how you went about doing it. But sure. you were talking about how he kind of starts to fall apart, right? And you get to this part where at the end of the game, you're kind of, you, you go through... 
and I don't even know what it would feel like playing the whole game as 9S and then suddenly switching back and forth between 9S and two or and uh, A2. It felt right for me because I spent the whole game from C and D. Once it gives you the chance to choose, every time you could choose, I would switch to the other protagonist. So then when you start getting to the end of the game and you feel like you've built up to this point equally, and then suddenly the game is seamlessly transitioning you between 2B or A2 and, and 9S, Mm-hmm. It seemed like it felt right for me. Did it feel jack? I like. What did it feel like to you? Did it feel weird that suddenly you were playing as A two when you'd done none of the things to get to um, that point? Kind of. It felt weird more because of the way they did it, where you have that one giant boss fight between the two of them, and um, there was a part of me where like I couldn't tell if it was the same enemy that they were fighting together. But and nine nine S was fighting it as it went as it disappeared in the fight from A two, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's how it felt because every time it came back up to not, to A two, I was like, "Oh, there seems to be a little more health missing." Did was okay. So these are the same things. And then you find out they're not. So that was kind of <laughs> where it it, w- it was weird for me. But other than that, I didn't really mind it. I kind of figured that was what was going to happen. It was just for me. I wanted to see. 9s's story out and then i wanted to see a2's story out to kind of yeah sure see that i didn't want to break between what was going on okay so i guess what comes down to there is like my personal feelings when you get to the end of that right when you're building and you're going through all this and you go through that i think climbing the tower is epic the way that all that goes down it just feels so cool the music's pumping and you're switching between yeah it was neat but when you get to the thing and you finally beat that boss once it fuses together yes is you have that thing where a two's like trying to speak sense into him and he's like, I don't care. You're going to die. Yeah. And then even though she basically tells him what's going on, like, Oh, this is a, a missile. They're going to shoot at the moon and destroy the server, which she's technically ultimately wrong about though. Not far. <laughs> anyway, it gets to the point where like the game asks you to choose. Mm-hmm. And for me, every time I play the game, I technically do ending uh, I don't know if it's ending D or C or not, but I always choose to play as A2 and kill 9S because I feel like 9S has gone off the deep end and Agreed. I can't connect with him. But since you were trying to see 9S's story through to the end, did you choose 9S on your first ending? No, I picked A2. <laughs> and then flipped it whenever it came the other way? Yeah, I did chapter select and did 9S's afterwards. Oh, but- okay, so that's how I did it as well. But since... I had built both of them up to where we were right there. And it was just I, for both saves. I was at that point. It felt like, okay, I'll just do that and then come back in chapter. So oh, yeah, my, my game was entirely one save. So I just, I didn't have an option to do like both of them or anything like that. Well, when so I say that, I mean, it, it was one save, but I had been switching between the two protagonists. Oh, so, okay. Gotcha. So no, for I, me at that point, I was where I should have been. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I was too. Cause On it doesn't, characters. It it puts you into the tower and then stops you and then you do all of A two stuff and then it stops you ah, in the tower. So it gets and then to a point continues. where you can't move forward Correct, unless yeah. you get so far. That's what I was trying because I thought at the end if you're climbing the tower and suddenly it's switching between A two and you just suddenly are playing as A two, like how the hell did A two get in the tower? Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> that would be super weird. No, it lets you you do one and then one and then they merge. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so there's that. Now, I want to take a step back and kind of go towards something, which is sure. um, pretty cool, at least as far as I'm concerned. 
So in Route C, as you're mentioning, or Route C and D, 9S goes and cracks the three different ominous towers with the writing on them, the angelic writing, as they call it. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the first one is called the meat box. The second one <laughs> is called the soul box. And then the third one is called the God box. And I remember being really intrigued by these the first time I played it. And so this time, whenever it was coming around, I remember that they were called this. So I was like, I wonder what's up with this. So I started thinking, and it would seem to me that the, that the way that this is structured is that these are the three building blocks of either the androids or maybe even humans. And the reason I say that is like the first one you have is like the meat, which in clearly in all sense of fashion, you could say is like the flesh. And and if you think about that, when you're going through that tower, you're fighting waves and waves and waves of enemy bodies. You're just killing through machines, which is their bodies. The soul tower seems to be software. If you're thinking about the androids or consciousness, if you're thinking about kind of androids and humans, and I guess to some degree, the machines, hence why the entire time that you're going through that, you're doing hacking through that specific tower. And everything you do is through the need of hacking. And then when you get to the God Tower, the God Tower seems to be like the reason that you fight. Because again, that's a big recurring theme in the game. Yeah. So when you think about the existence is for the androids and the machines, you know, we keep hearing that they have a God that they're fighting for. That's the whole thing. You know, the machines at one point in time had the aliens. We learned that that's not really what it ended up being, but the network still existed. And then you have the androids, and even though their masters had also been gone for a long time, they didn't know any different and kind of went on. So the existence of the androids and the machines are tied to each other, <clears throat> and this little endless struggle is tied to each other. And for me, I thought that this kind of hinted to the pod saying that the resources being collected in the meat box tower, he says something that's like, oh, these aren't for machines, but he doesn't know what they're for. Yeah. And so I was thinking, well, androids, but wouldn't he know if it was Android parts. And then you start to learn that the arc is designed to eat machines and the black box of Yorha androids is made from the core of the machines. And I think it starts to come together where it's like all these things are going together to get to a point where this is all about creating two different enemies, basically to perpetuate the cycle. And I don't know if you picked up by the end, but one of the big cores of this is like the machines were perpetuating what they were doing because they thought through conflict with the androids and giving the androids a reason to exist by lying about the humans being alive, that they could basically fight themselves into the next state of evolution. Right. And it's a really weird story part of this game where it's like the, we, I feel like we see two very different versions of machines, right? We see like the simple versions of what you're fighting through the majority of the game that may have a little bit more complex thought like Pascal, but a lot of it's just basic, like, oh, okay, you know, uh, mama, mama, I'm scared. Basic, you know, I'm trying to be human. Then you have more complex ones like Pascal who actually understand to some degree philosophy and think about it. And then you get to like Adam and Eve, which are almost like the embodied evolution version of the machines that you're fighting toward the end. And, there's this thing with the machines where it seems like they're constantly just trying to mimic human life, but they always fail in the exact same way every single time. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting point where I, I'm not sure who said it, but they're like, it seems like they want to fail. Like mm-hmm. the goal is failing. Yeah. Which I really found interesting. Cause that makes sense why they wouldn't adapt. Like, Oh, this won't grow here. So I can't do it. Instead. They just kept growing it there. <laughs> yeah. Be like, Oh, well, <laughs> let's do it again. Big boys. 
<laughs> which I kind of liked because I kind of viewed it as like the thing that makes humans work is our unpredictability and our ability to kind of just go on and change. It's like the idea of the soul, the thing that gives you, you know, <laughs> trying to think of the best way to word it, but the thing that lets you sit there and trial and error and trial and error and continue to strive to do better and move on and actually complete what you're doing. Um, but with all that in line, I want to ask you about one particular part because I'm curious as to what you felt about it. Sure. When you're playing as to be, I want to say, yes, yeah. that sounds right. And you go through and Pascal is the village is under attack. Pascal's going through. It might be A2. Honestly, the thing about A2 and 2B is that they do such a good job of trying to like push them together and be a singular character by the end. Yeah, I've, they are. A th- okay, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but you get to the point where you're helping Pascal, and I think you are A2 there, actually. It's A2, yeah. Yeah, and Pascal resorts to changing. I, I don't know why this is to me. I always think pascal's a girl i, I have do too. yeah every time i play this game and every time they're like oh pascal he's blah 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 i'm always like oh he is a boy damn <laughs> but changes his code and starts killing and it's all about trying to like work towards keeping the children safe and then you go in the children have killed themselves that was brutal <laughs> yeah and then pascal goes into the speech about how he taught them fear because they thought it would be valuable Mm -hmm. and in a way teaching them fear without trying to control it or teach the other side of it led to this point. How do you feel about the request? Cause I mean, technically it's an ending. You can't do much about it, but how do you feel about the request to hack her memories and destroy them? I thought it was brutal in the moment. It's one of those things that almost kind of shows Pascal's limited view on the world and free thought, you know? Yeah. Where she also learned fear and thought she could deal with it, but she couldn't, she never learned grief kind of thing. Yeah. Which I found interesting. Or at least, like, even if you knew it, maybe she hadn't experienced it to the degree to where now that she experienced it, it was like, oh, I don't want this. Yeah. It was kind of showing that, at least to me, the way I interpreted it was she had the idea of all these things, but didn't have the practice in them. You know, and when you're living an idyllic life, you can't really get the practice in being scared or in being in feeling grief, you know, because everyone around her is basically immortal and frozen in time as children or adults, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which is also weird. Like, you see these things go through, and it's like, who, why would you even decide to have a child robot knowing that it can't grow up? Like, you know, when you think back about the Forest King. And I, I honestly really love the Forest King sections where you get to kind of see flashbacks of everything that led them to where they are, where the Forest King dies and they take his memory and put him in, in the baby and then thousands of years go by and you have the scene where it's like he hasn't grown any and, you know, he's not getting any bigger. And yet, the like we talked about, the machines are just like, we're going to keep doing the same thing. Because it's like, oh, well, he hasn't grown or done anything, but we got to keep him safe because he sure is cute. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why, but that part just, it cracks me up while also making me kind of sad. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. I think the one character I liked the most, it was very incidental, not to take you off course, but the kid who keeps locking himself in his house. (laughs) I really liked him. I was like, oh, I get it. And then he was just, he was getting better at the locks, which I found really cool. 
Yeah. I also like, I don't know if you did it, the guy, the uh, the kid who they're making fun of for wanting the coin of lesser value or th- preferring the coin of lesser value. Yes, that was awesome. I love him. And I love when you go through and it's like, wait a minute, this kid's a genius. And he's like, all right, gigs up. Yeah. Please don't tell anyone. Yeah, prefer the one that's lesser value. They normally are so amused they let me keep it. <laughs> yes. So I make more money this way. Yeah. Uh, it was it's amazing. I love every bit about it and even just the way he's kinda like, Don't tell anybody, you know? <laughs> I wanna yeah. keep this keep this show going. That was the one where I was like, Okay, that was really smart. I really like that one. That was probably my favorite of the side quests. Yeah, I like a lot of the side quests and how they went towards kind of building up the groups of people that were connected to them. Because like a lot of the robot side quest in particular were aimed at being like oh this is just showing you that regardless of whether you believe that they are actually being it or not all they're doing is attempting to live a human life now it's up to you the player as to whether you think they're actually doing it or not and whether or not it's worth letting them try to do it but it's endearing it is yeah one of the ones i also really liked is the kid running off and telling his like and being like i hate my mom I don't yeah. want her. And then you kind of take it back and he's explaining the reason he doesn't like going back to his mom is because he doesn't feel like she really cares about him. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's stories that you would expect from humans, but somehow by putting them under the look of a robot and kind of changing their perspective up to this group of people that's trying to be like a human, I guess it kind of does make you step back and be like, you know, there's some pretty cool things about being human. Yeah, you don't realize it all the time, but it's a good way to kind of give the the little seconds to not take what you have for granted. The best one with I think it's that same quest is at the end when he's like, "How are babies made?" and Nine S and Two B are like, "Um, <laughs> uh," and then he goes, uh, "Come back and tell me how babies are made." Yeah, uh, but it's just it's real crazy seeing how that goes, and you know, there's things that you can look at and be like, okay, well, how do Adam and Eve go come about and gestate and go through and how does that work with the way the rest of the machines evolve and all that stuff but one thing i was and i we kind of talked about the beginning and i clearly see that it doesn't resonate with you the same way i thought that it was kind of interesting to go through the second playthrough and have it even though it is essentially the same bit of game as the first playthrough a route b is just from a different perspective I appreciated that what you end up doing is that it's aware that you've already played much of the content from route a and whether or not you like hacking, I personally loved it. It really makes me think of Bentley's side missions in the Sly Cooper game, Sly Cooper three and two specifically. Uh-huh. Um, so I love that. It was like a cool, like, ah, oh, yes, this makes me think of another game. I'll keep doing it. And I like the way it ties in the story and whatnot, but hacking becomes like a quick fire way to work through boss battles and big enemies that felt like they took much longer to fight as a two and two B where it's like, okay, you've already done this. So we're just going to let you knock out this guy that you probably struggled with a little bit as two B in like three quick hack sessions. Yeah. I like, I like, I didn't mind the hacking. I also appreciate the idea of like while play through B is the same thing. It pushes to do something that the first game did in changing the context of how you view your enemies with random interstitials of the past that served to make us empathize with the enemies more. Uh, like you said, you already were empathetic enough towards him and didn't feel like it was worth it for him to get go. But for some players who, depending on what you're co- coming off of, who are just kind of in the, the game tells me I'm supposed to kill them. So let me kill them. I think it kind of changes it up to where starting the route of nine S off 
with the little bot who's trying to go get oil for his brother and trips over the thing and keeps spilling the oil. And never ends up, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, I think it starts off endearing. And then as you keep going, this is where you actually learn more about Simone and where she ended up how she ended up and you learn more about the forest king and how he ended up being what he was and what importance he had to them. I like the way that all of these playthroughs go about trying to do something different and changing up the play style while also giving you a new sense of perspective because something the first game did is that when you, it was a little different in this and that all the endings are essentially the exact same game you're playing the same game, doing all the same stuff over again, but with new context as of the start of ending B, where yeah. you go all the way through, and the only thing that changes is the very ending. Mm-hmm. And then C and D, I think you have to have all the weapons in the game, and it gives you different options. And C and D are based off a decision. If you choose one way, it's C. If you choose another, it's D. Um, but this game pushing further to be like, well, okay, we're going to give you new context where you see your enemies in a different light. But we're also going to eventually let you kind of play the game with completely new content and change the way that goes. I really liked how they expanded upon that because as much as I love the original game, it does get a little more boring just feeling like you're always playing the same story over and over and over. This game's a little bit more like Guard 3 where you roll credits and there's an ending. And you can stop playing the game right there if you want. And that's a version of the game. But then if you go through and hit continue or whatever... You keep playing and suddenly there's new stuff that you're doing and you keep going through that over and over and over. And that was one of the cool things about Dragon Guard 3, even though that game ran like straight ass on PlayStation 3. <laughs> so coming back and seeing it done here, it's like, ah, there we go. A little bit of, I wouldn't say budget, but I guess that's <clears throat> kind of what it is. <laughs> Helps a lot. So one thing we haven't talked about yeah. in the endings is ending E. So I know yeah. you didn't do it, but I'm no. assuming you remember the point where the pod basically asks you... Basically, do you want to toss your save? Yeah, so how far did you even get? Because I think the first thing that happens is they ask you, like, do you believe that life is important? Yeah, I got through that. I get up to where they say, do you want to? And I was like, no, because I didn't... On the off chance I decided to go back and finish the trophies, I was like, I'm not going to get rid of my save. Yeah. And I can just watch this. (laughs) Okay, so you know from going through that, what ends up happening... Essentially, you did, you're not missing out much. At least you got you know to the point where you got to kind of go through fighting the credits, which I I think is actually really fun. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. It's cool because like you get to that point where you did every bit of it, and you let the people come in and help, and you got through it. And then once they're like, "Hey, are you willing to give up your save data?" You just said no, correct? Yes. Okay, so if you actually keep hitting yes, one of the things that's cool is that you have. Well, I'm going to back up a little bit because one of the things I actually think is cool about the whole ending is that it keeps asking you questions about the meaning of life and the importance of games. And I I actually really liked the way it was like, do you think this is just a game and that none of this actually matters? And it gets you, it lets you choose whether or not you want to be pessimistic or optimistic. You know, it asks you if this fictional world matters and then asking you if you want to give up every time you die, like, hey, you know, do you want to throw in the towel now? And if you press on, eventually you get assistance from other players' data and the ending theme weight of the world i thought this was so cool it moves and i i hope you picked up on it because i think it's pretty obvious but i think you feel it if nothing else it moves to having like gang slash choir vocals behind Mm -hmm. to signify the unity of the moment 
And then it wraps all up, of course, by asking you if you'd like to leave a personalized message for players, the same ones that you can see when you fail. It would ask you if you want to give up and you could look at the top and see people being like, keep going or this is pointless. (laughs) The two extremes. Duality of a man. And then getting to the point where if you want to sacrifice your save data to extend a hand to a stranger. And what I really liked about that is that every time you hit yes, it would be like, are you sure? And it would continue to say, this is going to someone you don't know. You won't be able to do anything ever again. And eventually it even goes to tell you like the things you'll lose. It's, oh, you'll lose access to the uh, ability to chapter select. You just earned that. Are you sure you want to give it up? Yeah. And he says, you know, this does go to a stranger, but by nature of that, this could go to someone that you actually completely dislike. Are you okay with it going toward the potential of it going to someone that you wouldn't want to help? And that's cool. Then the pods kind of going through and they kind of tell you that they're sad to have to say goodbye to you, which is, I think is actually a pretty cool thing. That's and the nice. final cutscene that you get is that they've broke off and choose to do all this on their own. And I actually don't know because the first time I got this, uh, the first time I did this ending this way, I decided to go ahead and do the full thing. So I had the game pretty much ready to platinum as I was going into that ending for the first time. So when it asked me if I wanted to delete my save the first time, I said yes. Did you get a cutscene even though you said no? No. It just, maybe I'm missing because I didn't do half the stuff you're talking about. So I got to a point where it asks you the first question and I said no. And then it fast forwarded through the credits and it said, do you want to save? And I pressed save. So I got confused. That's why I messaged you because I got confused and I started the game again. And I was like, I'm going to have to delay this episode because I thought I was done (laughs) and I'm not done. No, no. Ending E is the final ending. Gotcha. Because I went through and I played like half of the beginning and I'm like, this is so easy. Everything is level one and I'm flying through and it was to the point where the game almost broke itself because you fight those big Goliaths at the beginning and I defeated them in the first cycle and the game doesn't want you to do that. So they just keep fighting you even though there's no health anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Um, Yeah, so that's what I was trying to figure out. The game does essentially ask you the first question, which is not do you want to sacrifice your save. It's just do you believe... I can't remember the exact question, but it's ultimately something along the lines of like, do you believe that these androids' lives matter? Yeah. And I think it's because you went into it knowing that the final ending was to give away your save. So you were like, no. Yeah. I knew I was going to lose my save somewhere and I didn't want to lose it. So the second I got a question, I was like, no. (laughs) So I don't know if you'd be willing to do it, but I would personally urge you to go back and you can still tell it no at the end when I ask you if you want to give your save file up. But you can go through everything I just said. What you'll do is you'll get into like the hacking mini game, and the credits will start coming to you as like enemies and ships that shoot out the lasers and stuff at you, and you've got to shoot through them. And yes. you're working your way through, and you'll start to like you know it gets harder and harder and harder, and you're going to die eventually. When you die, it's like oh, do you want to give up or do you want to keep going? If you want to keep going, it'll start you like a checkpoint that was somewhere within that part, and you oh, keep a checkpoint, going. huh? <laughs> <laughs> damn those but (laughs) you get all that and then you get to this point where you are set up to where you've died enough times it's like do you want help and when you hit yes 
you get surrounded by 10 other things that are made up of people's data and you'll see them fly and it'll say, oh, this person has joined you and this person has joined you and you'll see their data fly around you and you start sh all shooting in tandem and then they're like a shield around you. So if something were to hit you, it actually hits them and goes away with them. But in a matter of seconds, another one comes in and takes its spot and you keep going and you just destroy the credits. And then you get to the end, the pods ask you, you got helped much like the players that helped you. Do you want to sacrifice your save data so that when someone comes through this point, your data can go forth and help them get through this. And one thing that I would be really curious to see, and I'm, it's basically a question we probably just have to ask somebody is did the first person who ever gave their save file up, did they not have any help since no one else had ever done that? That's actually interesting. I would be fascinated to find that out. Or is it more that the game kind of faked it until there were other people there and then it started to use real people's data? Or if it faked it all along and if it was really just about seeing if players would give up their thing? I don't know. I choose to believe it's a moment of everybody coming together and that's why you know I had that moment. And it's like I mentioned when the weight of the world's playing and you're doing this little shootout and you're going through, it's just a single singer and a single voice. And then once you accept help and all these other ones come in, the music just picks up with a new energy. And there's like a gang of people just singing, you know, we're going to shout it out. It's awesome. And I feel like it's so cool with what's going on around it. It's one of those like audio visual moments. It's like, I feel the impact. And I don't know. To me, it's really one of the highlights of the entire game. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that just from you talking about it. And I looked it up. The first person who would have beaten it, it was all help from the developers. But interestingly, I also found a thread on GameFAQs where if you don't play online, it's almost impossible. Oh, because you're not connected to a server. Yeah, I didn't think about yeah. that. Well, the guy in the thread I'm reading was like, this is unfair because I can't beat this game. <laughs> you can't get the true ending without the power of connectivity. Yeah. But see, I feel like that's pretty on point for what the, the point of that ending really is. It definitely fits the message. I'll, I'll give them that. Yeah. That's pretty wild, though. I don't know why I didn't. I mean, I never really thought to look it up, but every time I played the end of that game, I'm like, so did someone play this without any help at all? That just seems cool. That would honestly be the more interesting way to go about it, where it's like the game almost sends you a message like, congrats on being the first one to beat this. Good luck. That would be cool. Like the one message you get is like, Yoko Taro, like, sucker. You beat it too fast. <laughs> one of you had to suffer. <laughs> yeah, suffer the children. I actually try to get through that without help as, long, as much as I can. And I remember both times, even though I knew what to expect this time, because spoiler I've now since gone through the game completely again and ran through ending E and deleted my save file yet again. <laughs> Wait, like another time after you did it for the show? Oh, no, no, no. I'm saying like I did got it back you. originally when I got the platinum. Okay. And now I've done it again, even though I didn't need to. I knew what the ending E was, but I was like, I'm going to do it again. It's I, I think it's a really strong moment and I wanted to experience it again. So I was like, you know what? Screw it. I I've already got the platinum. I did a considerable amount of side content anyway, just because I wanted to. I'm just going to go ahead and give it up. That's very nice of you, Brett. And I really enjoyed doing it again. I wonder, can I double stack like that since it was an original save? Can my name be in there twice? I guess so. I was reading some guy has done it like five times now nice. just to keep adding uh, people in there. Yeah, I did think about it though. Are these things like... 
Did it, does it last forever, or if there comes a day where they turn the servers off to the, for the game, what happens? It'd be cool if they could find a way to like update the game to have all the players who cleared the game join the thing, and then it was just randomly pull players from that pool of data that's in the update. Yeah, I would be interested to find out like how they get around that kind of stuff. That is pretty cool, though. I mean, I, I like that idea a lot. I really think that it's, like I said, it's one of the highlights of the game, but it follows up with a cutscene of you seeing the pods with their newfound free will flying around and collecting android pods of parts of bodies because they decided that they are not ready for 9S and 2B to be gone and, and A2. So they start going through and realizing that they have some of their memory data on hand and that even though they won't be the exact A2 and 9S and whatnot that they were in with, that they still deserve a chance to come back to life and try and live again and you see them flying around with different body parts from different 9S's throughout the years that have been killed and basically mold them together. And you don't get to see them actually come back for sure, but you see 9S and A2 there and a bunch of extra pods they went and found. And then you see A2's body completed, leaned against the window. And it's uncertain whether or not she's conscious yet or not. Uh-huh. It's pretty cool. It's vague and it's a happy ending from a man whose games are almost exclusively non-happy endings. Yeah, I was say, this game's kind of brutal. Yeah, and almost every other around. game, even the secret endings, are pretty brutal. The whole reason that Nier as a spinoff even exists is because of a pretty crazy ending from Guard 1. It's ending E from Guard 1 is the canon ending that would lead to Nier. Wow, okay. Yeah. It's a very interesting setup. Okay, so things that we've not talked about that you may have wanted to talk about. Do you have any? Honestly, not nothing off the top of my head. It really, the biggest thing to me was Pascal, which I thought was pretty brutal. Honestly, I think we could have an interesting chat on Free Will, but that's more up to you. No, I, think, I mean, Free Will is a big part of this game. Yeah, I think if anyone has followed our stuff, you know that I, I don't believe in it. So that was what was interesting about this game was... Playing a game that so clearly is talking about the importance of Free Will? Yeah, but it also kind of implies my belief on it which is the belief that free will exists even though it doesn't you know yeah where my whole thing has always been that like i think that like you i i don't believe in it but you think that free will exists but you thinking that free will exists is part of it not existing because you can't if you didn't think free will existed you would never go on with anything right that's always the argument i mean Basically, and tying back into this game's idea of you need a god to motivate you. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, free will becomes their god if they don't have another one, right? Exactly. I think, like, you know, because there are people out there who believe in predetermination from God where when you're created, he knows everything that you will do and it's already been predetermined. Yes. And that there is no free will because you don't have free will from God, which I do think in a lot of ways, depending on the religion that you follow, is almost like counterintuitive to a lot of what it is because if you're predetermined to sin and he's the one who's made you sin, then why would he send you to hell? Well, <laughs> you know, that, that's like one of those early ones, and I'm sure it gets far more in depth than that. And I'm sure there are people who believe in predetermination that believe that somewhere along the line that free will is technically the enemy of God. I'm not sure because I guess that would be the argument, right? If you believe that predetermination is God's thing and that once you break free of God's thing, it's because you have attained free will, that means that that's what the devil offered Adam and Eve is free will. 
or eating of the of the the tree. Yes. But yeah, the point there being is that when you don't have a god that you think that your stuff is going to, a lot of people, myself included, who currently does not believe in any kind of god, I think free will is a big motivator for people. You feel like you're the one doing the things for yourself and that you're making those decisions and that motivates you to continue that cycle. Yeah. I mean, I I've always thought of it more as like not necessarily like free will doesn't exist, but that it only really exists for a short amount of time. You know, you you have free will in the sense of you be create habits, but at a certain point, like you've gotten to a point in your life where everything becomes predetermined um, through the way your parents raised you, through the things that you were exposed to. Yeah, you know. Uh, Sam Harris's talks are really interesting about that. And as someone who still ultimately believes in free will, I find those discussions interesting because I don't necessarily know that they completely negate the need for free will. But I do think that sometimes what people view as free will does, or even if free will exists, it doesn't mean people are, are technically asserting free will at all times. I guess that's kind of the way I actually believe in it. I think you're right. right. I think you can clearly look at examples of things and you can even see that within like the structure of this game, right? Where that the habit formed within the androids is killing androids. They are the mm-hmm. enemy. This is the habit. If you tell them, Hey, there's a robot, what are you going to do? Their answer is going to be killing it because that's what they've always done. They've bred that habit and you know that that's the way they're going to respond. Maybe before they even actually respond that way, because you can see that form and it takes a lot more. And that's why I appreciated the game having the ability to be like, Hey, I can walk into this area full of robots that aren't attacking me and I don't have to touch a single one of them. So, I mean, you know, in games, the weird thing is, is that in games we do have, okay, I should say this in game worlds, we become the free will of the player. Technically we exert our will onto the player to become the will of the player. So it's not necessarily free will, but the question then becomes that it's still not free will on our part, potentially if it's based off of your likeliness to do something habitually based off of the way you were raised and a multitude of other things. Yeah, I would agree with all that. I think like a good example of why anytime I think of Sam Harris, thing, I'm like, he has a, a, to a strong degree. He has a good point because like you can have those times where I'll tell you personally, I will be going down the road and I'll look and see Wendy's and be like, Oh, Wendy sounds good, but I don't need Wendy's. And then like, 30 seconds goes by and suddenly I'm in Wendy's drive-thru and I'm like, why the fuck am I at Wendy's drive-thru? Yeah, exactly. I legit just told myself I didn't need it. And it's almost like by telling myself that I know I'm not supposed to eat it. My body was like, nope, this is what you do, buddy. You're getting a triple bacon deluxe. It's, um, it's an interesting conversation. I just, I, I don't even necessarily think it's a God thing. I think just you determine what you're going to do to the point where, everything you're doing is already predetermined whether that's a facet of free will or not is one thing but i just think at a certain point you wake up every day and your day is already decided even if you haven't consciously made the decision so that's why i've always um said it's more the illusion of free will than the complete lack of it yeah i mean I, i think it comes through because for us the way our you know sequential thought works you have that you'll, you'll be sitting there and you'll be like, okay, well I need to drive home. Okay. Well, Oh, there's a construction right here. Okay. I guess I have to take this other way home. Well, on this other way home. Oh, there's Taco Bell. 
I could choose right now whether I want to eat Taco Bell or I want to drive by completely. And because our brain works with that kind of sequential thought, it's hard for us to say, well, we have to have free will because it's not like it can be predetermined that we were going to have to go down this road. But technically, it's about saying, well, it's all sequential and that you was predetermined that if there was going to be traffic on or, you know, bad traffic or construction on this road, then your preferred route would be to go this way, which means Taco Bell is there, which means that you'd see it. And if you see Taco Bell, it's predetermined what your response is going to be. Exactly. I mean, it's really granular thinking and it's, it's interesting. I think it's really interesting to question free will because just like everything, anything that you believe in, you should question, you should question whether or not you think, free will actually exists. I personally, even though, I mean, I tell my friends all the time, like I'm happy if you believe in a higher power, but at the same time, I think it's healthy to question why you believe in that higher power, not so that you don't believe in him, but so that you give yourself an opportunity to re-understand what it is and challenge yourself to know why you're so solid in that belief so that you are more solid in that belief. It's kind of the beauty of living, right? Is that you get to go through and even have the self discussion of, is free will real? Am I actually making these choices right now? Or is this just my body synapses doing what they are always doing based off of my history? Exactly. It's learned behavior. It's fun to think about. It's not yeah. worth thinking about to the degree in which you don't know how to live. No. Because <laughs> the thing is, like, I've always heard, well, if free will doesn't exist, I think Blake made this argument on Midweek Matinee. If free will doesn't exist, then why do I just not sit in my bedroom and not do anything to which my argument would be, well, that would be what you're determined to do, right? Is to just not sit and do nothing because nothing changes by you not doing anything. That's why there's no like marionette puppet strings over your head, but there's definitely a path that you're, you're on. Everyone's on a path. It's certainly, there's so many ways to look at it. And I think that there are pretty simplistic ways to look at it that I think are a little too simplistic and it, bears more thought than that yeah and it's just kind of how those things go and moving off of free will i did actually have one more thing i wanted to ask you about the game oh okay because i had i had your i i don't understand this part um why do they bleed blood yeah i've often wondered that too and i don't know if it was because of the feeling of wanting the androids to believe in the humans more being like we're modeled after the humans the humans bleed we bleed it connects us further with our creators or our perceived creators yeah i um, guess my issue with it was not that they bled but more that it was red yeah and like like blood because it's like it's clearly not oil Oil's not red there is red oil, by the way, just so you know that. Well, not not deep I, it, red like the game presents. To be fair, either way, it doesn't look like blood, yeah. <laughs> which is my problem. Is that it appears like blood there. Uh huh. So I don't know. I just didn't know if you had a take on that because it just didn't make sense to me. Yeah, no, there's not like a strong take on it. I think it's just supposed to be kind of coming back to the god complex of the game, in that much like we as humans are supposed to be modeled after our creator and God, that the androids are supposed to be modeled after their creators and the humans. And gotcha. basically everything they can do to try and push him towards being like that, it's there. I mean, I think across the board, too, personally, I think when you look at some of these things, a lot of people make the decisions to make things humanoid because we know how to sympathize with something that's humanoid more than we under, like than we do something that feels foreign to us. It's a reason why a game about a thieving raccoon can make you sad when something happens because they've given this raccoon human-like qualities that you can connect to and attach to and then see and go, oh, 
yeah, I understand that. I feel that. I, I know that. And when you see this Android bleed, which to be fair, this Android looks like a human in all aspects and everything. But when you see them bleed, it just further goes through. It's like, you know, gives it adds some finality to death. And if you notice this game doesn't tend to show excessive blood very often, unless it's going to be for a death that's actually final. Typically, if it's a quick death and you come back from it, it's shown really quick. You know, you just get a quick flash of the death and bam, yeah. you're done. The only time that blood seems to come into play and like the way that it looks is when you get a death that's like, oh, after this, we're all done. For sure. So I don't know if that's on. I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of thought put into why that did happen, but I don't know why they chose to do it necessarily. One thing that I thought was cool is going through like the Adam and Eve stuff. Uh, and of course how they're clear references to like the first humans and the machines are constantly trying to be like humans. So them going through that way makes sense. But we see them sitting at a large table reading from a book that we can surmise to be the Bible based on the conversations they're having around it. And Eve questions his name and asks why they aren't named Cain and Abel to be more apt of a comparison. And um, what I kind of thought about, there's two different things in relation to this. One thing that could just be Easter egg while still letting it be this other thing, but it could just be this other thing. When Eve questions the thing about Cain and Abel, you know the story about Cain and Abel in the Bible, correct? I do, yes. Okay, so in the Bible, for anybody who doesn't know, the story of Cain and Abel is where Cain has to bear a mark for killing his brother out of jealousy and because of such, it's a mark that the Bible describes as people being able to see. Now, often people refer to it as like a black mark. It's just something that's clear and obvious. And it's referred to that a lot. And the reason he has that mark, at least in the Bible, which I don't think plays in it here very much, but it's like promises protection of premature death uh, with the express purpose of preventing anyone from killing him. He doesn't end up murdering his own brother. But I do find it curious that whenever we see... Eve at the end of the game uh, of end of route a and end of route B technically you see him have this black mark that continues to grow. And I feel like I don't see that black mark come up until his brother dies. And then you see it slowly spread more and more across his body. And I wondered if that was supposed to be a reference into the mark of Cain. I think it was, but I thought that he had a tattoo on his arm before that. That's why I was trying to remember as well. Now, of course, we don't see it spread for sure until yeah. the brother situation. It's but, different, but... Yeah. So I thought it was just an interesting idea. And I mean, it, it would have been kind of interesting to see them be Cain and Abel. But I like the whole thing of them being Adam and Eve because of, you know, giving in to trying to... He, he rolls the apple to his brothers like, eat this. You know, like, we're supposed to eat from this. This is the fruit that gives us great knowledge. Yes. Uh, so it's wanting to be like man, and like, like we even talked about, they even want to fail like men did. So they want to go through and go through the hardships of becoming, you know, clear to original sin and all that. It's it's pretty crazy stuff. But the other thing that it probably at least is for sure a reference to, uh, whenever it starts to spread to the halfway point across his body, and it's almost like it's completely dividing his body with the mm-hmm. black tattoo and the his normal skin, you'll see like a little three headed face right above, like right on his like chest. And that is a reference to a group in a uh, guard called the cult of watchers. And Yoko is like real big about putting references to other things in there, but it's not always clear if he wants them to connect in some way, shape or form. 
So it's hard yeah, to tell. I'm not sure. But I thought it was cool that he put it there to begin with. One thing that we didn't talk about is the game's music. Oh, incredible. Incredible. Absolutely great, fantastic soundtrack. I also hear that of Persona 5, and I assume Royal by the same degree. Royal has uh, better, in my opinion, but that's because I think Royal has some of the best music I've ever heard. <laughs> it's hard, hard change. Well, speaking of the music, I'm sure you probably did, but it's so seamless that you may not pay attention to the fact that it happens. But when you're playing as 9S and you go to do a hacking sequence, whatever song is playing is tr- seamlessly transitions to an 8-bit version of it for the hacking minigame. Yeah, I like that. I love that. Little small details like that are really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, only other thing we didn't talk about that I think is really funny more than anything. I took a screenshot of it because every time I see it, it just cracks me up. When you first come to the desert uh, with 9S and 2B, and the de- the robot's running from you, and you come across where you eventually end up fighting, I guess, Adam. You you see the robots, like, eating each other out and humping each other. I don't know if you actually paid attention to what they were doing. One of them's got, like, a baby carriage that's empty, and he's just rocking it and saying, like, child, child. Yes. And yes. if you look at another one, he's just, like, getting back and then, like, thrusting his metal into the pelvis of another one that's laying down. And then you can see one as it's down where it's like laying on its back and another one has got its mouth open and it's just going in and out at like various speeds like it's eating it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. just, I don't know. It, it's I guess it's funny because it's like almost like for me it's like juvenile humor of like, ha, ah, it's sex. But it was more, it's just interesting seeing them put that off on robots and how vulgar it all looks when you put it, when you take like the the soul out of it all when it's just like you're doing it as an action that you're mirroring, but with no actual meaning behind it outside of we're humans. We're supposed to do this. No, absolutely. The child, child, baby. I really like that. That was like ominous, but also hilarious. I think going towards that same part, there's so many little parts that just make me laugh, but also are kind of like unsettling in a weird way. Uh, you know when you're on the way and you're chasing the one and the desert robots are hopping out and they've been like, how are you? Nice weather today. Yeah. While you're, while you're fighting them. <laughs> it makes me think of the SpongeBob episode where it's like, oh, hi. <laughs> Lovely weather we're having. Yeah, I think uh, going back real quick to the ending E thing, I don't know. You, t- you said you haven't played Kingdom Hearts, but Kingdom Hearts 3 did a really cool thing where – I don't know if it was because of this or what, but more games since have kind of brushed against similar idea of having all these other players come through and support you. And in Kingdom Hearts 3, I'm not going to spoil it completely, but there's a very similar thing that happens that ends up being like a big move of that's built up of other stuff. And it was cool to see that. And I'm wondering if, like, if this was an inspiration for that or if there's something that acted as an inspiration for this game that was also the inspiration for Kingdom Hearts. Uh, you know, when you don't know any different, you see something, you're like, well, this is potentially the first thing to have ever done this. And then you're like, but also probably not. Because <laughs> there's so much stuff out there. Yeah. It's like the, um, am I the only one who believes? No, you're asking on the internet. You're definitely not the only one who believes that. God, yeah, I see that all the time. When people were like, here's my hot take. Ghost of Tsushima is a great game. Is that a hot take? <laughs> right, that, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it'd be kind of one of those things of where if I were to suddenly be like, I'm sure I'm the only one who feels this way, but I think The Order 1886 is a great game. Clearly, a bunch of other people think that. So 
So it it seems weird when people put stuff on themselves to that degree. But when you don't know any different, I guess when you live in such a bubble that maybe you feel like maybe nobody else has played this. <laughs> All right. Well, there's nothing else I can really think of to talk about. What do you think? No, I think I'm okay. Um, yeah, my only other point was the blood, so I'm good. All right, cool. So I think the next game we're going to be doing probably be a little bit easier to talk about. Who knows? It's I, I do find it weird that when we have these episodes where I feel like there's such a disconnect between us, uh-huh. it's, gonna, it's, it's weird to try and reconcile all that. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely one of those, like, we have to kind of argue a little bit. But I'll, I'll say I expected you to get more angry with me, so. Well, I mean, like, you, you've given yourself away to a degree. Like, yeah, you're mad at the game, and I don't think you're completely wrong about being mad at the game, making you lose progress, but you also set the fucking controller down in the middle of a fight. So, I mean, it's at some point, part of me wants to be like, you deserve it. <laughs> I mean... I could make the argument that it was bad design for me to put on auto-dodge and auto-heal and auto-attack and, and then it not do any of those things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't make that argument, but I could make it. <laughs> good Lord. The, game's, the game is good for somebody else. It just wasn't for me. I, I, that's my biggest thing. Well, here's, here's the thing that it comes down to. While I do love the game across the board, and I think that this is the first time that we've had just a truly excellent gameplay experience with a Yoko Taro story, the thing I was mostly curious about is where you stood on the story. Yeah. So story is the best part. Absolutely. Hearing that you really liked the characters, and, I, and as much as I say the story, I mean, it is the story, but it's more how the characters are used within their stories that sure. I think make this game really do well. Uh, it's, it's like Saul and I often talk about with the first The Last of Us, where it's like, it doesn't mean that these aren't things that you've seen other games do from a narrative standpoint, but they're doing them with such great control of their characters that the characters end up selling this otherwise mundane idea to a degree where you feel very strongly about it. Because it teaches you that story writing is like nine-tenths character development. And if you don't have good characters, then a cool narrative idea almost doesn't matter. Yeah. So I really like that about this game. And I also personally really like the yeah. English voice cast for this game. Yeah, I thought everyone did well. Yeah. I'm, I know I'm blasphemous over here. Someone's going to listen to this and be like, <gasps> <laughs> but also I'm pretty sure that you can only play this game with Japanese uh, voices once you clear Route A. If you're playing the, uh, America, the English version, I could be wrong. But I want to say I remember when you start Route B, it's like, oh, you can change the voice now. You can change, like, your dub over. I'm like, oh. So if you really hate dubs, you have to play, like, at least 10 to 12 hours of this game (laughs) with a dub. Suffer. To the point where you'd get used to it. And then would you even want to change? I'm sure someone would be like, thank God I can finally change this. (laughs) It reminds me of um, how I didn't know fighters had English voice acting. And the second I found out, I changed it because Goku's voice actress is awful. Oh, I hate it. The Japanese voice for Goku is honestly the primary reason why my buddy was like, you can watch uh, Dragon Ball Super, uh, you know, before it ever started coming out. He's like, you can watch it all subbed. I'm like, absolutely, I will not. Even if I wanted to read it, I'm not going to listen to an old lady yell at the screen as Goku. It just doesn't even sound right. The most badass character in the universe sounds like an old grandmother. doesn't make any sense. And so I was like, say what you want, but I've been hearing Goku speak as the English voice actor for Goku since I was like six. I'm not changing now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
unless something happens that forces me to, you know, like if Goku's voice actor died, then fine, we'll deal with what we have to do. But, um, all right. So our next game that we're going to be doing is spirit fairer, which is a title by thunder Lotus, a studio that I thoroughly have enjoyed the games I've played so far, which have only been Jotun and, um, thundered. I'm actually not sure if thunder Lotus has any other games. Uh, I looked at their team. site. It's just those three, just those three. Yep. I'm not surprised. They're a very small team, but they have a very great art style. One of their big things is about trying to make the game look like it's just hand-drawn art in motion, and it's beautiful. Absolutely love the style. Very detailed, very pretty, and we've seen a lot of games kind of do this since with games like uh, Gris, and there's something else that can come to mind that's like it, but we've clearly seen other games start to try and take this hand-drawn aesthetic. Uh, Hollow Knight's a good example, too. Of yep. kind of looking very thick and like you're just watching something animated happen out on screen rather than something that's like, or hand animated, I should say, happen out. Yeah. Uh, but yes, join us if you'd like. Play Thunder, play Spirit Fair by Thunder Lotus and come join us for the next episode. Probably be about a month from this one. That's the schedule we're trying to keep with. This one's running just a hair behind, but you know, we have lives outside of this. So mm-hmm. we appreciate your patience. And we appreciate that you realize we do have lives outside of this. And we hope you enjoy it. Chris, thank you for joining me. We'll see what happens. Maybe Chris will be your host on next one. Maybe not. We'll find out. On the next (laughs) episode of... (laughs) All right, guys. Uh, Chris, thank you again. If you want to say any last words to the audience, please do so. Um, Last words. Last words. There you go. If you want to get access to this content early, head over to patreon.com slash nartech and consider giving as little as a dollar per month like many of our existing patrons do. Uh, You support the show directly, which we are ever so thankful for, though we, of course, are happy that you even give us your time of day to listen at all. Uh, You can give up to $5 a month if you're in the U.S. or $7 a month if you're out of uh, U.S. to get early access, your name shouted out at the end of content and a custom case of your choice that I design PS4, PS5 games that are in PS1 like jewel cases. You can go check those out. We have posts of them over there on Patreon. And lastly, of course, like I mentioned, you get shouted out on content. So a big shout out to our patrons this month. We have our newest patron, Mr. Mark Schutz. So thank you so much for that. We also have Kyle Grimm, Josh Jarrell, Matthew Green. My name is Dan, Luke Bartolomeo, Sean Sanderud, Funk Turkey, Danny Villalobos, Corey Hickerson, Blake Post, Kevin Bacon Bits, Eric McAllister, Shadowist, Steven Salazar, The Stonard, Rich, Constantly Kenny, Solitary Red, Chris Figs, Zachary Sawyer, Landis, Rude Days 93, Brian, Donovan Williams, William Digital Spooker, Derek Porter, Josh Ayers, Joshua Lago, Sean One Neo, Tyler Powers, El Chabib, Jason Clendenning, and Richard Schaefer. Thank you guys so much. And remember, if you'd like to become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash nartech. Thank you.